Welcome to Rogue Bows. This is episode 30 after a big week of NBA finals. We are once again joined by Pro and had a lot of good feedback, Pro, from our, our old friend Andrew Gaze. Oh, what did he say without me in the room? <laughs> I think he balanced out not swearing once on the show with, with you. So it, it um, you know, got a lot of good feedback for everyone out there that listened. You can catch that. That was episode 29. We did an Olympic preview with Andrew Gaze, but it's safe to say, I think the first 30, 40 minutes, he was uh, in a bit of shock. Yeah, so was my wife in our marriage. So she's still shocked. It's fucking 10 years later. But yeah, I get you. It was, hey, that was one of the funnest couple of hours that I've had in basketball in a long time. I mean, he... He was a good, I mean, first of all, unbelievable guy with great stories and great insight. But I mean, he could take a fucking joke and a pounding swear wise. So congrats to him. Yeah, and he's he's one of the one of the best storytellers out there. He's he's very gets very animated. His eyes light up when he's telling these Olympic stories. So he's always always an entertainer as much as he is an athlete, and that's why he's on on TV a lot here in, in Australia and does a lot of a lot of good media work. But the NBA Finals, congratulations to the Milwaukee Bucks. Absolutely sensational run they had. Um, it was there's a lot to talk about which we'll get to but you know you got to congratulate the Milwaukee Bucks for everything they've done they've come out as as winners the celebrations were awesome Giannis was awesome but we'll talk about the games game five and six for me were, were just such typical NBA finals games like massive swings Milwaukee were up big in, in in game five Phoenix came back and then and then it was the the reverse sorry it was the reverse Milwaukee were up big and then Phoenix came back and then and it reversed in game um in game six but just just swings back and forth jabs few haymakers and then they get back on their feet and it was just a really good I think game five and six were really fun to watch as far as the drama and and the intrigue of what an NBA final should be how, how did you find those two games well it's just typical NBA like you said like I think that if you're going to be successful in the league or at any level, actually, you know, you get punched in the mouth early. Don't, you know, as a coach, as a player, as a spectator, don't, you know, sort of go nuts. Settle down, settle into the game, get easy looks like you've been getting all season, and then get back in the game. The game's so fast. And so, you know, with the pace of the game, with the threes and the pace that they play, that no lead is really safe. You could be down 20 and that, that thing could evaporate, you know, pretty quickly. But and I think, like you said, there was a lot of jabs, a lot of jabs, and then teams stayed in it. They fought back and then, you know, one team just didn't have enough at the end. And it, it was a good finals. Um, the last game especially, it, it didn't start out great in game six. But then, I mean, like probably the last two and a half quarters or so was very entertaining to watch. It was great. Yeah, great. I thought it was great finished by Milwaukee, obviously, to, to get the win. But, I mean, most of these games in this final series, most teams were in it with three or four minutes left. So that, that's always good to see. Historically, there's usually a, f a few blowouts in a series. I mean, Phoenix just capitulated. I mean, up to 0 the world was kind of bowing to their feet like they'd already won it. And that was kind of 
the interesting thing I, I found reading, and we, you know, we always talk about it, you can never get too high and too low, and when you're high, everyone's going to tell you the best, and when you're low, they're going to tell you you suck. I don't know if they bought into it, but it was completely different. Once they got punched in the mouth in Milwaukee, they just didn't look the same, and there was some fatigue that set in. You know, we, we actually probably got one right and talked about the Chris Paul effect and what Drew Holiday picking up full court and annoying and grabbing and everything legal, just physical, great all-league defender, probably wore CP3 down, but... You know, Giannis, Giannis, Giannis for this series. I mean, he was he was just he just kept rising to another level. I mean, we forget that that this guy's knee was was basically you know facing backwards at, at, at one point in this playoffs playoff run against Atlanta. I thought when he did his knee, he was done. So the fact that he even came back, he was clearly struggling in the first couple of games, and we spoke about it. The Euro wasn't in his game. He wasn't as comfortable off one foot, which is fair enough. You know, his knee probably just didn't want to take that that load on one leg, but. As he as the series went on, he got better and better. Whatever drugs they gave him, whatever whatever they whatever they put in his drink, it, it worked. But he was just phenomenal. Finishes the you know the, the game game six with a fifty piece and pro for me. He, he's I don't I don't know him and I hope I'm not I'm not fooled by this. But from everyone I talk to, he's one of the most he is the most likable superstar I've seen in the NBA for you know a number of years if not ever um i love the way he goes about it i love his attitude he's always smiling he admits when he's when he has bad games he's kind of honest in his presses you would have loved that he dropped some f bombs in those press conferences and i guess <laughs> you, you let it slide because you won a championship but i mean have you seen a more likable superstar mvp championship winner than Giannis? i've never um maybe be, um i can't even say michael jordan because plenty of people didn't like him but when i was in greece folks you know, during the playoffs and early finals, actually, about half the people you have deep conversations about the kid, especially in his, in his neighborhood. You know, I, I probably talked to about 30, 40 coaches and players and people that grew up in the neighborhood. Probably almost half of them had tears in their eyes by the time they're done with it because they were so happy for the kid. You know, everybody loves him. There's so many Greek Greece jerseys with either the compo in the back and it, it, it was fantastic. I mean, it just... You talk about any – they just light up when they talk about the kid. And anybody who worked with them or spent any time with the kid, they go nuts about him. And you could just see it. He is a great kid. Look, he's he's a flawed – he's not perfect as a basketball player like anybody else. You know, he's got his flaws. But I think he proved that, like, he doesn't care that his shooting is a little bit, you know, not the greatest. You know, he's like, you know what? This is my game and I'm going to dominate what I do. And I don't care. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna let it fester that like I'm not Larry Bird shooting the ball or Ray Allen. You know, I don't care. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna play my game. I'm gonna play hard. I'm gonna carry the team on my back, and then we'll see what happens. I, I just, yeah, he, he's he's a fantastic kid and and a, and a great player. So I'm happy for them. I'm happy for the team. Happy for Bud. You know, just because you know all these things that have been said most of the year when they were weren't playing great at times. That I'm glad they stuck together and and you know played very well and won themselves a championship. It's great to see, man. It is. We're t- touching on Bud, we're going to touch on him a little bit later, but we might as well get to it now. Do you believe he's fired if it wasn't for a Kevin Durant size 19 shoe? <laughs> that fucking size, that that size with that Durant shoe is unbelievable. It carries more weight than I do sometimes. Let's not. Let's be honest. It doesn't. No, n- probably not. I mean, you, you know how it is in the NBA, Bogues. Especially when the media starts killing it and they start talking about it every day. He probably wasn't, which isn't really fair, you know. But 
that's just the expectation of the league. He probably wasn't going coming back. I would say 90, 95% chance he was gone. I would say Rick Carlisle would be the next coach of the Milwaukee Bucks if they lost that series. What do you think? Yeah, I agree. And that's the un- unfortunate reality of um, the NBA and the media. And he just had a bad rap, you know, like, oh, he- Bud just can't get him over the line. Well, it's like, well, players have a, a play in that as well. And it's just so cool to see him now. He's forever a champion in the city of Milwaukee. He's going to be a legend there for, for life, uh, along with Giannis and the rest of that squad. But yeah, it's just interesting how, you know, those, those, those sliding door moments in people's careers whether you're a coach or a GM and there's that Popovich story that um, I've probably mentioned this on the podcast before but Steve Kerr mentioned this story to us that in that lockout year I think it was 99-2000 the Spurs didn't start off that well in that season apparently I can't, I can't have to look back and I can't give you the exact numbers but the story goes something like this they were on a losing streak of some sort or they were up and down and it was a, um, a Saturday or a Sunday game and Steve Says he got a call from his agent saying, you know, when you guys lose this weekend, they're going to fire Pop on uh, on Monday. And he thought, okay, cool, whatever. Like, he was pretty new to that team. He moves on from the Bulls, kind of, you know, it is what it is. And then, they, so they win on, on the Saturday or the Sunday. And, you know, as we know, pro, there's a lot of teams that don't, they don't like firing a coach after a win, right? They like to, to really double down after a loss and pat themselves on the back. See, we just lost again, so we're firing our coach. It's just the way it is. You ever rarely see a coach fired after a win. So they win on the on, on the Saturday or the Sunday. They go on to win like 10 or 11 straight, right? And they don't fire Pop because then it's, you know, it's basically mid-season. That was the lockout year, remember? So it was an 82 game. So they're already two-thirds through the season. They make a run and they win a championship. And you look at where Pop is today and what he's done and he's been there now since, you know, 20, 25 years. They're the sliding door moments. Now that was that was you know from a pretty good source in Steve Kerr, and he's told that story to, to to many people, and it's just crazy how how small how small that room for error is at times, and and Bud conquered that small room for error by winning a championship. So I think it's a really really good story. Yeah, you know, as an organization, folks, you gotta have some fucking balls. You gotta close your fucking ears. Stop read. Stop fucking you know reading. Tw- you know, if you're an owner, stop reading Twitter in the middle of the fucking night. What what these fucking talking heads are talking about and saying right if your coach is good if your coach is good and you feel as though that he's putting in a day's work your players like him you've got talent you've got to really evaluate your team are you really good enough to win a championship were you healthy is this coach prepared like i said player relationship and are you putting the best product on the floor that you can for this coach to evaluate if you're going to fire him or not i don't care if Stephen a smith says to fire him Kendrick Perkins says to fucking fire him. Who gives a fuck what they think? You got to really self-evaluate the best you can. Like I said, I think Terry Stotts in Portland, like that's an example. Like he should have never got fired. That team had no fucking chance. None. And their players liked the guy. And you fired him because why? Because you think you're a championship fucking team? Yeah, I I I think I should be weighing 175, but that shit ain't happening either. You know what I'm saying? Like you got to just self-evaluate. And then if, if they're underachieving, if their players hate the fucking guy, if he's just a bad dude, then yeah, I'd fire him for those things. But don't fire him for just to fire him. I think Bud's a good coach. Look, I told you all the time, like, I, I think coaching is very overrated in this league. I think you have talent and then the coaches are great for adjustments and keeping you organized, no doubt, keeping everything afloat a little bit. But their ATOs aren't better than, like, the number one coach in the league isn't fucking that much better than the number 18 coach with ATOs in the offense and defense that they run. I'll tell you what, the number one, te- number one team in the league 
that coach has a lot more fucking talent than the number 18 team. But when, you know, in the playoffs adjustments and things like that and how you could bounce back, that's what you pay for. But I think Bud, regardless of what happened, if he lost that Brooklyn series, I wouldn't have fired the guy. I, I give a fuck less he won a championship or not. I, I think he's a good coach. Unless, like, your team is rev- you're revolting against the guy. I don't, I don't see that. What, what do you see, Bogues? Oh, the, the blame game is a big part of the NBA, you know, and it's as we've discussed in numerous podcasts, it's who's got the owner's ear and who's got the GM's ear. Um, they're the two, you know, the GM's are an important one as well, but the, the owner's be all and end all. So, you know, if someone that the owner trusts is in his ear saying, this guy just can't get us over the line, you know, he just can't do it, he blah, 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 then that, you know, that puts a, a negative kind of picture of that coach. And then then as an owner or a GM, you're hearing that from people you trust, and then you're looking for any small failure during the season or playoffs. Oh, yeah, they're right. You know, there there it is again, you know. So it's just one of those hard things in, in the NBA and professional sports. It's, it's like you said, who is the owner listening to? Who is the GM listening to? They're listening to social media, listen to regular media, all that kind of stuff. And I think it just, it can kind of create an avalanche effect on, on an owner or a GM to, to react and just do something because they're supposed to do something. And that's what you ne- you never want to be in that position. As you said, if your players are developing and you're getting better, your team's getting better, it's a good culture, it's a good workplace environment to come in. Guys like coming to practice, they like lifting weights, they like being around the group. You've probably ticked most boxes as a head coach if you've got all that right. Because that's, that's, Sometimes, as we know, that's that's a challenge in itself. Like you could have the most talented roster, but you don't get that right. You're not doing shit, and it yeah. looks like Milwaukee. You know, if we said at the start of the season Milwaukee's going to win a championship, you'd probably say, "Oh, their roster's probably just they just don't have enough on that roster." Um, so they've, in my opinion, they've overachieved. When you look at the Brooklyn's of the world, even Miami gave them fits last season. So for them to come and and, and win a championship. Um, they were in the mix, but you definitely wouldn't have them as number one. I think it's great, and I think it's a credit to the coaching staff, everyone involved there, the organization by investing in their guys. And and look, they they you know they need some luck too along the way. You know, Brooklyn had some injuries, but then Milwaukee had some injuries, and they 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 continue to punch. And they let's not forget they beat Atlanta without the MVP and their best player. Um, they came out and and made some great adjustments in that series. All right, Trey Young was banged up as well, but he was on the floor, and they still won that series. So that, they did a lot of things great, and and you love you love to see it. But that's you know that's the way the the NBA is. It just you know if if, you, if you're not winning the championship, there's probably realistically another two or three or four rosters that had a genuine chance. And if you're outside of those, like a Portland, and you're just like oh it's our coach's fault, there's a bit of delusion there. Um, at times, you know, there is a time for a refresh if a coach has been there 10, 15 years and it's just the voice is getting old. Probably Carlisle-ish, you know, where, where it's like time to move on for all parties. I get that. But as far as a team like Portland's a good example, it's like, well, you know, you probably need to address your roster before you address the coach and actually give him a bit more kind of um, consistency on that roster um, and then then see how he goes. You know, maybe bring some defenders in and a bit more physicality and then then give it a year or two and then it's like okay we're going to move on but um I, I just think it's just a reactionary league and and the media has a big part to play in it but that's how that goes with coaching what about what, what do you think about Giannis's comments around the super team i think they were great i think it was a it was kind of a backhanded slap to to all the super teams out there uh, for those that don't know Giannis's press conference after the game which had a lot of gold i mean every player that gives press conferences after a championship the the guards down it's there's a lot more truth in those press conferences, and um, Giannis basically just came out and said, I, "I could have joined a super team, but I wanted to win a championship in Milwaukee. Wanted to do it the right way, and just kind of mockingly laughed that he could have joined a super team and won it the easy way." 
uh, where, where you know he, he took a lesser role. So I kind of enjoyed it. And I, look, I hope I hope this now is the trend. I don't I don't think it's going to be pro. Let's be honest. But I, you know when you look at the, what the Warriors did in, when I was there, and that started a trend of small ball and death lineups. It started a bit of a trend to win a championship. I wonder if this will you know somewhat keep some of these homegrown stars to be like, you know what? I can be the man of my team and try to do it. I agree with Giannis. It's worth so much more doing it that way. People will say a chip is a chip, so be it. But if you're if you're Giannis, you're the number one guy. You know, you were on a team. Giannis was on a team that was 15 and 67 pro in 2013-14. Giannis and Middleton were on that team. They were 15 and 67. Fast forward eight odd years and they've won an NBA championship. That You can't change that grind of what it took to get to get there. But you know, going and joining a super team, it's still you still win a championship and you tick that box. But I don't think it's as fulfilling as what he just went through in the grind, pro. Yeah, especially in, in today's society in, in the NBA and in pro sports, it's a, such a copycat society, right? First, nobody really did many of the super team stuff. Then Miami did it, won it, and then everybody sort of tried to do it. Oh, we got to do this, we got to do that. And now Giannis winning it. I think there'll be a little bit of a copycat trend for a couple of guys, but I think that most players, not all, but most players like to take the path of least resistance. You know, why can't I just, why not just join up a super team? And it's that much easier. There's not a lot of players that really want to get punched in the mouth every year, especially early on in their team's development and stick around for it. You know, they'll, they, they want to point fingers at the first thing. First, they'll get the coach fired. Then they'll get the GM fired. And then they get their agent fired. And then they're like, at the la- then they're like, all right, get the fuck out of here. It's, you know, there aren't a lot of like Dame Lillards out there. There's not a lot of guys that like not hunting for the door right after the season if they don't win it year in and year out. But that's just the league. I, I, I think it's great what he dealt with, what he, you know, what Giannis dealt with. I mean, he really sort of took the, you know, took the hits early in his career. Um, I think early in his career, he struggled a little bit. And then his second, third year, obviously, he, he really made a big jump in his development. And, you know, they started adding pieces. They had Middleton and they have a few pieces here and there. And it was a, like a little bit of a revolving door. Then they finally got like Lopez and, you know, they did the holiday deal. And, you know, Pat Connaughton was a big, was a big boost to them. So, they started, you know, having these draft picks that sort of did pretty well for them. So it is what it is. I can't tell I, – I can't fault somebody for wanting to join as a super team. If that's what you want to do, that's what you want to do. If you want to stay with your team, that's what you do too. You're your own man in this league. You make enough money and have enough stature to do that. Um, I'm, I think it's awesome for him to do it in a small market. You know, he could have left. He could have went to L.A., Miami – all these places, he decided to stay. He decided to say, you know what, I'm going to do it in here. And now he he might be one of the most popular people ever to live in that state. And he's just getting started. And they have the you know they have the whole team back, and they they could run it back. They might be able to do the same thing next year. Who knows? And maybe maybe not. But I said I I definitely applaud what he did. He stuck through it. That city's great. You know, it's a, it's a great deal as far as a small market that. You know, eight years ago was a joke, and now they're on top. It's it's a pretty cool, pretty cool achievement. Yeah, it is. And uh, I mean, this isn't a knock for anyone joining a super team. I, I don't. I think the rings a ring. I just think it's. I think it's more fulfilling to go through those those shitty years and those 
those ups and downs and we almost got there and then we didn't and then he wins the MVP that year and they get bounced by a, a Miami team that um, or the following year he gets bounced by a Miami team that you know probably shouldn't have been in this series had to go through the fire that's what I think I just think it's so much I was part of one of those in Golden State where we, we had to go through the fire it was a full rebuild I got there it was a dismal culture dismal organization you know it was a shit show kind of you know it was a lot of revolving parts and then new owners came on board new GM new coach and it was fulfilling to be part of that grind of the ups and downs and the naysayers to then a championship. And I think I think Giannis, that, that's more the point around the super teams. He, he did it the hardest way possible in a city that can't recruit first-tier free agents ever. I mean, they can't even get meetings with first-tier free agents like an Anthony Davis or whoever it is. They're not even taking that phone call. They're, they're like, Milwaukee, Milwaukee who? Do they even play in our league? It's kind of that attitude um, for everyone out there with first-tier free agents. So for him to do that, stay there, push all these chips to the table and win it, it's great. A few other tidbits. Drew Holiday copped a lot of shit early on in the playoffs, mid-playoffs, and even early on in the in the um, finals at times and copped a lot of shit but just kept kept doing what he does. Um, he's, a, he's a grinder, great defender. Made some big shots for him in that series. Phoenix made numerous runs in game five and six, and he was the guy that actually made the big plays. You know, the infamous steal late in the game from Devin Booker, alley-oop to, to Giannis. He hit a couple of big, uh, made a steal one game and dribbled up and popped the three, you know. So he was huge, huge. He had his paw prints all over that series, in my opinion. Middleton was huge as well. I mean, they've got a big three that's formed naturally in itself. But Drew Holiday, to me, was was really instrumental in just, just him kind of not letting all that bullshit kind of get to him in his game and just kept doing what he does. Didn't try to, you know, a lot of players that face criticism and aren't playing as well might try and go into a game and, and press and try to do too much, which then backfires even more. He didn't. It just looked like he was even keel every game, steady, knew knew his talents and what his role was and, and was fantastic in, in that series, I think, even with some of the bad stat line nights. Yeah, he was. And it, it was a great move by him by just, just to sort of, like we always say, don't don't get too high, don't get too low. You sort of just keep at it. You keep your routine going, and your daily routine. You just play hard. You just you'll be just let it, let the game come to you, you know, and do what you do. He's a seasoned veteran. He's been through this before. You're gonna go through highs and lows in series. And I think the players that are mentally weak, they let it get to them. They stop being aggressive. They stop looking for their shot. They stop looking to do the things that they usually do every day because they're too embarrassed and too, I want to say, gutless to make a mistake. This game is filled with mistakes. This game's filled with bad games. It just is what it is. And he stayed with it. He stayed hungry. He stayed, you know, gave, you know, gave the, you know, gave Phoenix fits, you know, CP. He, he did his thing and he finally overcame it and played really well down the stretch when they needed him. So I think that it's just sort of a, an example to anybody. So to, who gives a fuck if you have a bad couple, first couple of games of a series? Dig in. Don't change everything up because that's what most people like to do. Don't change anything up. Just keep your routine. Look, he's been an all-star. He's one of the better guards in the league in the last decade or so. Like that is what it is. You just got to keep playing hot and keep playing through it. And it's good that he just stayed with it. He's a, he's a seasoned pro, seasoned vet. People like him. He's a hard-nosed kid. You know, I'm happy for the kid that he's stuck in and he didn't he didn't go nuts like most players would. Yeah, and then following that, Portis, he, he, I caught some of his comments, which I found, you know, I found inspirational in a way because he, he basically made some comments around 
what it means to be a role player. So, you know, when he was on numerous other teams at times, he's, he's been a number two, number three option, a young star at times um, from when he got drafted. But he just spoke about how he accepted the fact that he was a role player and he, he really learned this season in general of how to play off guys and be not be the number one, two, three guy and find find ways to find buckets by crashing offensive boards, spacing for threes, making the right spacing read at times, being active, taking his shot when he gets it. But he mentioned, look, on other teams, I'm getting 9, 10, 11, 12 field goal attempts. I don't know I'm going to get them every night. On this team, it was you know closer to five, six, seven, and I accepted that and, and tried to figure out ways on on how to, how to best myself doing that and playing off Giannis and Drew and Middleton. And I thought it was a really – Really, really got a good press conference for people out there that aren't, you know, there's only one star of the team and there's usually only another two or three mid-stars like a Middleton and a Drew to Giannis. If you're not one of those guys, how do you play? How do you fit in? How do you get court time? And for young kids in high school, young kids in junior basketball in Australia, college, whatever it is, right? There's a role there if you're willing to accept it. Everyone was the man, you know, when you become a professional athlete in, in whatever, whatever team sport, Everyone was the man as a junior in high school on their team because you wouldn't be a pro otherwise, right? So it's hard to then adjust to like, hey, I was getting all the touches in college and high school. Now they're asking me to just be a defender or a three and D guy or an offensive rebounder. But you know, it's hard as a young fellow to accept that. But it seems like he's accepted that at an early age, and he's got a championship for it, and he'll be lauded eventually. You know, by by some teams like like you always say, you get overpaid for championship team because he's now bought in and has that culture and understands what it takes. And I thought that were really cool comments. Bogues, this league is filled with players, man. Past about player 100, it doesn't fucking matter. One to like six really fucking matter. Seven to like 30 matter a lot. 31 to 99, I mean, very much needed for teams. 100 on, they don't give a fuck. Bobby Portis, Johnny Portis, L. Ray Portis, you know, Gianna Portis, and you, you name it. Does it matter? So if you're going to come in with the attitude, look, he was a first-round pick. He was a hell of a player at Arkansas, hell of a player in high school, highly, highly touted. Then he comes into the NBA. It doesn't really work for him that well right away. You know, plays like, you know, plays an okay role in Chicago. Then he goes to Washington. Then he goes to New York. Most players in this league, it doesn't, like, they, they start – they start blaming everybody else. We talk about it all the time. I, you know, I was the man in college. What well, ain't the fucking man anymore? I've had countless conversations in Dallas, you know, in, in this, in these roles and talking to players like they look, this ain't college anymore. You got three other guys you got to play off of. You got to be in that fucking corner. You got to fucking play hard defensively. You got to know our playbook. You got to be a fucking pro and you got to figure out how to play without that fucking ball in your hand. Because if you don't, I guaranteed. I say, look, you know what? I'll leave at your table tomorrow. I'll leave it in your locker. 200 fucking euros and a fucking case of Rosetta Stone, the Czechoslovakian fucking series, because that's where the fuck you're going to be. Because 60 more players are going to get drafted and they're going to, they're going to forget about you or easily. You'll go to another team. They're not going to be invested in you. They're not going to care if you make it or not because they got out their players that they drafted and they signed in free agency. You're just a throw in. And then you're just not – you're going to wash out of this fucking league. And Portis figured out. Bobby figured out. Like, look, I, I, I'm not that guy. But you know what? Like, if I play consistent, if I play hot, when my number gets called, there's, seven, there's 82 games plus playoffs. There's going to be times where they're going to have to call my number because Giannis is off. 
you know, Lopez can't get it going. Middleton's hurt. They're going to need me to perform. And that's what people got to understand in this league. Past 100, they don't give a fuck about you. They do, but they don't. They could just, they could rearrange it. They could, they could sign this guy or that guy or this guy. There's plenty of players in free agency for $5 million, $8 million, $7 million, mid-level exception they can get. So you could either like point fingers, oh, it's everybody else's fault, or you can look yourself in the mirror, talk to your coach and say, coach, what do I need to get on the floor? What do I need to do? Because I'm going to get on the floor. I want to help us win. I want to either sign with us long term or go to another place where they'll value me a little bit more and I could do a little bit more. But that's the problem, Bogues, because everybody that comes into the league is usually the LeBron James of their high school team or their college team, you know, and everyone's telling them how great they are. And nobody really sits them down and says, hey, look, but that was college. I always say, like, do you know who the prom queen was in your in your high school? Because no, I go, yeah, no shit. Nobody fucking remembers. That was seven years ago, six years ago. People forget real quick in this league. And, and I'm glad he rebounded. He's a hell of a kid. He plays hard. He's tough. And I'm glad that he's figuring it out. And he's, look, he's probably going to get paid a lot of money somewhere else. And they're going to have to make a decision if they keep him or let him go. They're probably going to keep him. They love him in that town. But now he's figured it out. And they'll probably give him a little bit more of a role next year. You know, and he can gradually move it up. He's only 25 years old. It ain't like he's 35. He's got, you know, he's got years left and he could continue to develop. No doubt. And a similar example I had is I played many years ago with a team that we had a, a call up from the G League and he was not going to name who it was, but he was a kid that was, was you know, top three leading scorer in the G League every year. And he got a call up and I had a, he had a conversation with me and he just, oh, you know, how do, why can't I, why can't I fit? And I'm like, you know, to be honest, man, like most NBA teams don't need a, a G League leading scorer on a call up, right? They need generally the guys that get called up are guys that rebound really well, block shots, hit the open three. They play a role really well. They generally don't need a guy to come in and drop 30 for him. And, and this kid just couldn't get his head around, I'm a bucket. I can get buckets here as well. And I'm like, well, we don't, don't need buckets from you because we have five other guys who are great scorers, you know? So like you said, it was just hard to sell to this kid like listen man pick up full court knock down the open three when they call on you to do some ball handling duties don't turn it over get us in our shit get us in our sets and you'll you'll find a role but he felt like oh no i want to i can show more than that i'm like yeah but we don't need you to show more than that that's you know so and that's you see that a lot from the g league because then these some of these g league guys are like how did he get a call up i'm better than him i'm more talented i'm like yeah you definitely are but he's okay being a screener and a guy that just offensive rebounds or a guy that just takes charges or a guy that's a lockdown defender. And that's the difference with a lot of, like you said, once you get outside of that top 40, 50 players in the NBA, you're, you're very easily re replaceable. You're a pawn in the chess game, whereas those top 50 are, are the big dog pieces. So Portis is a prime example yeah. of that. Yeah. I remember a kid we had, Bogues. We brought him up for the D-League. Nice kid. I mean, really good kid. Played hard. And I'm working him out before. You know, he we were really bad in Dallas. So, like, he was putting up some numbers, you know, for us because we were just sort of, you know, we were sort of getting trying to get a draft pick. So, he's working on his, like, ISO stuff. And I go to him. I said, dude, what are you doing? I said, you need to work on space in the floor, straight line drive, one dribble pull up. That's what you need to be working on. He goes, I'm an ISO guy. I said, you're not an ISO guy. He goes, I will agree to disagree, but you're wrong. 
I said to myself, motherfucker, we're going to start seeing you on the Taiwanese game of the week in about a month from now. What are you doing? And that's what he did. He, he ended up playing. And, you know, he's right now he's probably trying to figure out how he's going to spend his $20 a day meal money in the D-League and, you know, checking into the best Western as we speak because of the fact that he doesn't have it tunnel vision like I just got to do this one thing and I can get $2.8 million a year and be in the best league in the world. Instead of like, no, I'm an ISO guy because of that ego. That ego fucking kills it. I'm glad uh, I'll get off the point. But, you know, like you said, like a lot of players can't understand. Most of the, I'd say about close to half the players in the league, Bogues, because of their ego. And usually it's like from seven to 13 best player in the team. Because of ego, they probably cost themselves three years in the, three less years in the league because of the fact that, they don't want to fucking buy into being a role player pro, you know, and they think that they need more touches and more, you know, they think that they're an all-star when they just got to be a role player and they can't handle it. And they, and that's, and that's what happens. It ends up fucking up their careers. I'm glad, I'm glad he's back on track, man. That's great. Yep. No doubt. And then just finishing on Milwaukee before we get to Phoenix for a little bit, I felt like Giannis made some pretty pointed comments at you, bro, um, during his press conference. I think he, <laughs> Some sub comments to pro. He said, People say I can't make free throws. Well, I made 17 for 19 tonight. I made my free throws, pro. So I know we, we've both been on him. Me, not as much because I can't be a hypocrite because I didn't make a lot, but you definitely were at numerous points throughout the season. And, and he, you know, game six, balls on the line, championship on the line. The kid did not look like he was going to miss a free throw. It was actually quite an amazing, um, you know, mental adjustment he made that game. First of all, he's right. That game, he was mock fucking price. I mean, he made. I mean, he he was big time. He slowed it down. He just he he didn't he phased everything out and he did what he needed to do. He's still not a good free throw shooter, and it's still it still could be an issue. I'm not going to take anything away from the kid. He's a champion. He's he's got balls as big as my fucking stomach, and he's I mean he's unbelievable as far as what he did in that series and carrying that team to the championship at, at times and. Um, yeah, 17 for 19. The kid was ridiculous. It was the ultimate big time Hall of Fame move that he did, uh, as no question. But he still can't make free throws. But um, on a long term thing, he, he definitely needs to address it. But you know what? He's right. He's right. He fucking that game. He was unbelievable at it. Actually, you know, in the last half of that series, he was pretty damn good. And like I said, between him and Simmons, he doesn't mind being there, regardless if he's makes him or not, where Simmons is afraid to be there. It's a big difference. Big difference, yeah. You know? So, yeah, no, he, hey, he definitely made a statement, Bogues, for sure. Just real quick, because, you know, there's obviously a lot of clips coming out about Giannis and um, old old interviews and whatnot, and they, they showed a game, one of his breakout games, his rookie year, was against the then Brooklyn Nets with KG and all that, and um, his jumper was smooth back then. Like I don't yeah, know if you, I don't know if was. you've seen clips back then, but he his free throw was smooth. He was shooting three balls like in rhythm, and it, it looked it looked much better than it does now. His confidence hasn't wavered. That's the most important thing, as you just said. But man, his his jumper back then was really really different. I, I don't know where the, kind of that hitch hitch of his came from, but yeah, man, it's um I've heard yeah. Unfortunately, we've been around it like this. Somebody from the coaching staff made him change it, and. That was it. I don't know who it was. I don't know why it was done. If you look at it, it was pretty smooth. It was fine. He shot like, I want to say he shot like 34%. Yeah, Giannis shot rookie season 
from the three, he shot 34.7% from the three. Yeah, so he was on target to be a 38, 39% three-point shooter. It was going to take him some time, but they totally gutted his shot. And what it did was, we talked about this in length. I'm not going to go too far into it. But the difference, Bogues, here is his head shoots back. It shoots back, and it's the heaviest part of your body. And it's like shooting at a moving target now when your head goes back. It's, it's a death sentence for a shooter. And now he's, he's made some strides with that for sure. But that was the biggest problem. He's got a couple other problems, like his guide hand is sort of like on top of the ball instead of on the side. I mean, there's a million things. Uh, not a million, but there's a couple of things. But, yeah, I mean, that's what happens when you – instead of saying, you know what, let's make a tweak here and there, but we're good, Giannis. Are you, my two questions I always ask a shooter, folks, are you comfortable? And are, you, are you comfortable with the shot? And are you confident that the ball is going to go in? And I know you're struggling right now, but are you confident when you shoot the ball? And if they say yes to both, then I'm like, you know what? Stick with it. But we might make a tweak or two, but we're not going to gut the thing. And that's what they did. Somebody on that staff gutted it. And, you know, I'm glad he's back and I'm glad he's sort of built it back up. But, yeah, it's, it's just typical NBA bullshit, you know? No doubt whatsoever, but just an interesting tidbit. Moving on to Phoenix, CP3, geez, unlucky. Um, top of the world in the first two games, having a hell of a playoffs, hell of a final series early on, stayed injury-free. It was kind of, you know, the rhetoric we're seeing everywhere was CP3's finally got there after a long season. We even spoke about it. He was going to be the second longest tenured player after Kevin Willis from winning a championship um, for, for a long a long career of more than 10 years. But yeah, just couldn't couldn't get it done. I guess the question for me is, and you know, that we both probably have, is what does he do now? Does he does he join a super team again a la Houston, the Houston Rockets? I mean, I classify them as a super team because I think James and um, Eric Gordon, you know, James is an elite and then Eric Gordon's that next tier superstar and then you've got Chris Paul. So I would classify that as a super team. Will he join a super team again, Pro? There's, there's rumors the Lakers could be in the mix. Um, that would probably mean mean he'd have to take a bit of a pay cut I assume Phoenix obviously in the best position to offer him the most money at, at the moment the Knicks are still are still there he is getting older he does wear it around a little bit later on in the season he did prove he, he's not doing that this year but where do you see his future do you, do you think he hangs around if I'm him I'm signing I'm, re- I'm going to re-sign in Phoenix now does Phoenix want to give him 100 million my guess is that they they're going to make a huge jump backwards if they lose him you know campaign did very well for them for sure. And as a backup and then played when, when, when Chris was out, he, he played an outstanding role for them. But I think you make a, uh, he is a experienced vet, even though he's older that you could lean on and he can carry a little bit. As you saw in game six, he fucking carried them and they just, they just fell short. But financially, you don't want to fuck your team up. If you're talking about giving them $33 million a year or so, $100 million over three, what they're probably going to say is, you know what, we'll, we'll give you partially guaranteed year three. We'll guarantee, fully guarantee you year one and two and partially guarantee you three. And he's got to make a decision. That's probably one of his best options for trying to get back to the finals and not fucking up his tax bracket. If he goes to the Lakers in free agency, it's mini mid level. He's not going to do that. I mean, come on. I mean, I know he might want to win a championship. He's not Bernie fucking Mac and Mister Three Thousand. You know, coming back at age forty five just to get his three thousand hit. He's, you know, he could stay in Phoenix. They'll sign him because they need him, and that owner will take a lot of shit if they don't. 
but they'll probably partially get maybe half guarantee the third year. Then he can go to New York. Leon Rose, his former agent, and um, he could sign with them. They got they got about um, about fifty five million or so in cap room. They could easily sign him. New York people would love it. Superstar doesn't matter how old you are. You know, you can go back. You know, go. He can go there, and you know they're okay. They're maybe one round and out. Um, there are trade scenarios in a sign and trade with Phoenix, but I mean, LA just doesn't have any fucking assets, folks. They're not trading obviously Davis. They're not trading LeBron, and the rest of their roster you can't get shit for. You can't. I mean, you can't get much for those guys. Can't get much for Kuzma, Gasol, you know, Morris. Taylor, Hor- Horton, Tucker's okay. Well, hold on a second, Pro. Kuzma, Kuzma said he's in the same class as uh, Tatum, apparently. Yeah, he is. He actually said that. Ja'Kale Tatum. He plays in Siberia. Um, oh, God, Kuz. He's, he's a good player. He's a good though. player, but he's no Tatum. No, 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 no. I, I like Kuzma. I spent time with him in China. Good kid. Uh, but he needs to get back to simplicity. He tries to do too much. And I think he's messed his value up just a tad bit trying to do too much, and it shows in games. He's not consistent at that one thing that you could really rely on him for. But, like, you can get a little bit for Kuzma, for sure. You can get a little bit. But they need – I mean, you've seen it, folks. I mean, LeBron is breaking down. You know, it's hard for him to play a full full season. You know, Davis, he's had injury problems his whole career, you know, staying healthy. It's going to be really hard for L.A. to really acquire – a really good player unless they take a big time pay cut. I mean, even if you, even if you offered four or five players, even with Schroeder, like, I, I don't know, maybe sign and trade. I don't know how these things work, but sign and trade Schroeder and give Kuzma. But like, if you're a team, right, do you really want to take Schroeder at 20 plus million? And then you got Kuzma for years. Cause he just signed. You want to have those guys on your books. And what are you going to give back in return? Uh, what are you going to give them back? You're not going to give them back an all-star for those two guys. I mean, Kuzma, so, Drummond, Schroeder. I mean, they have some they have some stuff they can move. Harrell, potentially for Phoenix. You know, if CP3 did a sign and trade and it was, you know, spitballing. But Harrell, Kuzma, a throw-in, and then Chris Paul on a throw-in. I mean, it's doable. Um, there are some assets there. Um, if anyone's going to do it, it'd be the Lakers. They, they have some pieces that aren't too bad. But, yeah, I mean, Kuzma's a big contract. Harrell's is reasonable. I think Harrell would do great in a system um, off the bench like Phoenix. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's just going to be interesting to see what they do just because the age thing, you know, like the Phoenix, as I've discussed, take that risk of, of giving a longer term deal and they can't go full full length max because of the, the age rule, which I, I assume CP3 being the head of the union will try to change in the next month or so. <laughs> but yeah, just interested to see what happens and whether he's whether CP will buy into that whole, I need a chip, I need to join a super team or whether he will just rather bank that, that 20, 30 million and not take a pay cut. So, Folks, what would you do? You're, you're that age, right? You get three years. And I, I had a couple of conversations this past week or so about this. Are you taking $100 million with almost no chance of winning a championship? Or are you going to take veteran minimum so you're making maybe $9 million over three years? You're going to give up $90 million? Not that disparity, no. Nah. My whole thing was yeah. like if, if it was, you know, if, if to stay in, in Phoenix – try to compete for a championship again or go to LA. Let's say it was go to a shitty team. A shitty team offers Chris Paul, you know, three years, hundred million, and a championship contending team offers him within within twenty percent of that, 
you'd, you'd probably go to the championship team. But anything more than that for me, if it's double or more, like you're crazy leaving that money on the table as, as much as as much as you want to win. But, you know, people will say, fans will say, oh, well, he's made $200 million in his career. Why does he need another 100 Well, who knows? Maybe he has a lot of baby, yeah. baby mamas in Cali that he's paying 20 k a month for. You know, you, you never know. You never know what his needs are. You never know what his financial situation is. So I never judge people about uh, upon taking more money because you don't know the circumstances. Um, divorce can be expensive, you know, so there's a lot of different things going on. But yeah, I'm usually within 10, 20%, I'd probably choose the winning team. If it's more than that, you're like, you just can't pass that up. It's, it's generational, lifetime, life-changing right. money for not only yourself, your kids and their kids and their kids. So I'd probably I'd probably weight it that way. But I think you'll have suitors, but you know, his bestie LeBron was at the game. So I, I think I think LA would, would potentially make a push, but maybe not, you know, to have LeBron aging, CP3 aging, um, and unfortunately often injured Anthony Davis, you're putting a lot of money in three baskets that might not, you know, combined play, you know, 100 games for you, you know, so it's a tough one. And then you got nothing left. Like at least now, right? They're not a good team, the Lakers. But at least now you've got Caruso. You've got Kuzma. I'm just saying coming off the bench. You got Kuzma. You got Horton. You got um, Montrez. You got Gasol. Yeah, you got Markeith. If you make this trade, now you're talking about in a perfect world, Schroeder, Kuzma, Horton, you probably could do the deal like that. You don't need to throw Montrez in because I think Kuzma's at like 13 or 14 million. Schroeder's going to be at like 20 million. So right there, you got it. Now, if I'm Phoenix, I'm not a big Tucker Horton fan. I think he's a good player, but not he can't really shoot it. He'll get better at that, but he's just okay. But he's a young asset. So for me, I want picks, although they gave most of their picks in New Orleans in the AD trade. But like Schroeder, so you're talking about no Schroeder, no Kuzma, no Horton, and then also picks. Like so, now you got to fill them with just veteran minimums because now you're going to have you know CP at 33 million, you're going to have LeBron at three billion, and you're going to have Anthony Davis at his money. It's going to be really hard to sign anybody else. So plus draft pick picks, plus re- any kind of young talent. You know that's a problem. But I'll go on record: the Lakers are going to go all in to win a chip. You know, LeBron's not going to yeah. allow them to even talk about rebuild and a similar team will do the same thing, which we'll yeah. talk, talk about shortly. But they're not they're not going – they're going to go for the home run. It might not be CP3. It might be someone else, but it um, could be Dame, you know. But they're going to they're gonna make some sort of play to get another big three in there and try to – they need a chip in the next year or two with LeBron aging. So that, that's my – I think it's everyone, and including Stevie Wonder, can see that. They, they're, they're pushing the chips to the table. They're, they're not going to – just keep this roster and make small tweaks. They're going to go bang. So, And when you're thinking about a Dame trade or a trade like, oh, they're going to get this third player. True. Okay, great. You know they need it. But you also got to think about, well, would the other team do this? You know, the salary, like it's, you know, you got a, a million people going to that fucking ESPN trade machine. Like the trade works financially, but you think the other team would really fucking do it? That's what you got to ask yourself. Yeah, why would they do it? Yeah, it's true to at a big at a big number. I, I wouldn't do personally. Period. I'd just be like, no, give us something else. But anyway, credit to Phoenix yeah. um, to finish this off. I mean, they they had a hell of a run. No one we did we picked them to lose in every round they got through. <laughs> and you know yeah. they, they were fantastic. They they overachieved. They were, they were great. Monty Williams. I mean, credit to him going into the the Bucks locker room after they lost the series. It's something I haven't seen very often um, now that could be because everything's televised these days and it's probably happened before but a camera missed it but um, if that's the case I apologize to coaches that have done it but I thought that was I, a, a very very nice gesture by Monty Williams I think Giannis invited him I thought I read that today 
that he was very thankful that um, Monty came in and um, came into their locker room after he invited him. But I, I might be wrong. But no, it's classy for sure. Like Monty Williams has been a class act since he's been in the league. Head coach in New Orleans, assistant, I think, in Oklahoma City, Philly. You know, he's been in a bunch of places. I mean, he just carries it with class. He's a good guy. Um, I've never really been around him, but people that worked for him before love the guy. There's not many people at all that says anything bad about him. You say Giannis is the most likable player. He might be one of the most likable coaches that you've ever seen, you know, because he's just a good guy. And and, he, and he's in there with his players. His players go hard with for him. And no one ever says a bad word about the guy. And give Phoenix a lot of credit. They fought hard. No one, including us, gave him any type of chance to win anything. And they came in there, guns a-blazing, and they, they made it all the way to the finals. And, I mean, I don't care what they say. Like, Devin Booker played his ass off. CP played his ass off. Bridges, Crowder, Aiton, Cam Johnson, you know, campaign, you name it, Kaminsky. Those guys played hard. They just didn't have enough at the end of the day. And it's a great it's a great thing for that organization, that fan base need to be players. They, they need to be very happy about where they stand right now in, in today's league. It's, you know, it's a great thing. Good for them. It is, it is, and always good to see two small markets in there and, and battle that out. Okay, so mid-range game, we talk about how, I mean, for me, I, I got you to look at some numbers, and I think you racked your brain trying to find some of this stuff, but um, it seemed like for me in the eye test, there was a m- much more mid-range, mid, mid-range jumpers, if I can get that out properly, that, you know, in the playoffs and the finals, it just seemed like it was, whenever there was a big bucket needed, it seemed like it ended up being a, a mid-range. So I got, we, got, we crunched some numbers in the regular season, so we factored, basically factored mid-range a little bit differently. Anything outside the charge circle, so three feet, three, four, five feet, to inside the three. In the regular season, league-wide was 30, 37% of the shots were taken there and 39% in the playoffs. In this final series, Phoenix had 43% of their shots from that range. And Milwaukee were down on, on league average. So they were at 33%. Now, I thought it'd be a little bit higher. I thought Middleton took a fair few mid-ranges, but I guess with Milwaukee, they were, you know, Giannis was either one foot in the charge circle dunk layup, or he was at the free throw line and they were hitting a lot of threes as well at one point in their big analytics. But Phoenix were, were over the league percentage, which was interesting. You know, CP3 loves that mid-range and Devin Booker was hitting the mid-range and then obviously Aiden hitting hooks outside the paint probably inflates that number a little bit. But yeah, the eye test for me was that most a lot of the big shots were uh, mid range, with the numbers the numbers don't see a massive jump, four um, percent up. Sorry, six percent up for Phoenix when you factor in the regular season is a big jump. But then you know you go on the other side of the ball, and, and Milwaukee was down. So interesting, folks. Well, you know you hear it all the time. You know threes layups. It, it's around all thirty teams. Uh, that's that's the way they want to play. Um, analytics has taken over uh, as far as everybody's thought process from management to coaches to players that's what they want to play but if you go back even the last 10 years where analytics has really taken a jump there hasn't been a championship team that didn't have at least one if not two um, probably on both teams that dominated the mid-range game you know in this series you know Middleton took a bunch you got you know Chris Paul took a bunch you know Lakers you had LeBron you know Miami Heat you had you know you had you know, Butler, I mean, Golden State, you know, for as many threes as Steph Curry takes, he takes a bunch of those mid-range shots. You know, Clay Thompson took a bunch of them. You got, you know, you got Kawhi Leonard, LeBron again. You know, you, you just keep going back. You know, you need mid-range shots. You, you hear Jeff Van Gundy saying it all the time. 
when players have to get into a shot, they always usually get to the elbow. It's some type of elbow drive off a pick and roll, isolation. It's usually some type of elbow shot or short corner shot. I think that get, that shot is here to stay. And I think that when you watch it in the playoffs, especially, you see players that are the best on the team. Yeah, they'll take their threes and they'll take those sidestep, step back bullshit shots. But a lot of the time, especially in the last two minutes of a game, crunch time, you'll all, or, or deep shot clock, you're going to see them take that mid-range shot. And I think that that's a shot that everybody needs to work on because it's a, a trusted shot. I would, I think you have to maybe re-examine the types of shots you're going to take in the mid-range where eight guys draped all over, you might want to get off of it. But I think the mid-range is a very powerful shot that is utilized in every playoff series, especially as you go deeper into the into the playoffs and especially in the finals. What do you think, folks? Yeah, just just from the eye test, which wasn't – I thought it was way more – I thought it was a higher percentage than, than we just stated, um, but – Folks, I'm half a fucking moron. I might be wrong on all those numbers, but, um, you know, I, I don't take that out of the realm of fucking possibility. Yeah, it's approximate. But I think, you know, like it was noticeable for me that Phoenix were definitely up on mid-ranges. But, yeah, I think it, every team wants to shoot the open three or get on the rim and every team's trying to defend against it. So the mid-range in those, you know, those those run-field clunky finals games where it's grind at times and then it's free-flowing then it's back to a grind, there's a need for those – those mid-range players and, and that shot does become important at times because the defense is giving it to you. So, you know, and, and Chris Paul was real effective with it throughout the playoffs. Like he's, that's his, get, that's, you know, you know he's going right, but he'll go left to go right and he'll get to that little fall away 10, 15 footer and, and that's his bread and butter and that's analytically a bad shot, but he's, he's elite at it. So just interesting to talk, you know, some numbers around that. We know analytics plays a big part in the game and, and the mid-range jumper is frowned upon but you'll see it a lot in FIBA as well it's it's gonna it's gonna rear its ugly head especially when the quarterfinals come and it's a grind out game you know um, it's gonna be a big shot that you're gonna have to make that, that most teams are giving up anyhow moving on from the finals congratulations once again to the Milwaukee Bucks there was some obviously some good stuff with celebrations so jump online there's, there's so much content these days from the NBA they do a great job of, of getting stuff out and those those celebrations are always fun to watch the Warriors Win now mode. There's, there's rumors circulating, pro, that they're gonna they're gonna move seven the seventh pick and the fourteenth pick to try and move for a, a win now situation. There's rumors around Lillard, Lillard and once again Beal, who we've spoken about for the last fifteen years about being a potential candidate for Golden State. But yeah, it's just interesting. I I I, I kind of assumed I had a hunch that this would be the case. I don't think Steph Curry's in that. I don't think he wants another year that they had a couple of years ago where they where they or the last two years really they lost in the plane and then um you know they 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 were horrendous the year before with injuries and, and their roster so he doesn't want any of those let's rebuild some talent let's go through the draft we're two three years away he wants win now rightfully so he's earned that right to to, to put that demand on the organization I think they're listening they're they're going to make a move you know Giddy's Josh Giddy Australian brethren is is rumored to be around between seven and fourteen so he could potentially go there but they're going to make a move they're going to trade for for a big name to align with with. Steph and Clay and Draymond, and maybe Wiseman's included in that draft. Th- those two draft picks, but um, what are you hearing on that end? Are you, you know, are they gonna are they gonna do this and, and pull through for a start? Here's what I hear: forty six million, thirty eight million, thirty two million, and twenty four million. That's what I fucking hear. Those are the salaries for their top four guys, uh, salary wise. So that's that's. I mean, I'm a fucking half a moron. That's. At least 140 million or so. So there's your salary cap right there. No one's 
I don't think many people are going to still trade for Wiggins right now when you still owe him $64 million. So you're right. Two draft picks and Wiseman who makes 9.2 next year. So, you know, now with those two picks and Wiseman, that can get you about $12 million worth of player. You know, unless you trade in with a team that has a shitload of cap space that they could absorb your money. I mean, like, but like that, but they're taking it back so they can't absorb it. So it's going to be hard for them to really get a player. Like I said, the only type. I think they go over the cap. I think they heavily go over the cap to win now. I think they do. I, I don't know how far over they can go. Yeah, but you can't though. You, it's not play, It's not like baseball where you just write checks and you can pay a, you know, you pay your luxury tax. If you're over the cap, the only way you could bring in a player is by trade by signing with your exceptions, which they're way over. So they have, they'll have the taxpayer mid-level exception. That's like four million bucks. So you can't do it there. You get minimums that you could sign. Your biannual exception, which is nothing. And you can't take a player on unless you get money out. You got to come within 25% of the money. So if you get nine million going out, because look, here's what they got left, folks. You got nine million of Wiseman. Looney's at five million, which I think it's an option, which he's, I think he's going to opt out. I've heard uh, two million for Pool, a million nine for Lee, Allen Smilagic, one point seven, Eric Pascal, one seven. So you got you don't really have money to generate to get out unless you're going to trade Draymond, unless you're going to trade Wiggins. You know that's the only way with those two picks and a Wiggins. If this was fucking two thousand and thirteen. You know, and people actually liked Wiggins, then you'll be like, yeah, we'll take him right now. I just don't think of, of Wiggins' inconsistency at $64 million left in his deal, two years at 31, 31 and 34, why anyone would really take that. But yeah, they need to. You're right. They need to win now. They need to trade those picks for, you know, and, and put it with something else to get a guy that they can get. What do you see? Like, would a team be enticed by Wiggins with set, with the seven and fourteenth pick as well? That's that's let's say a team that's in a rebuild. They've got cap space. Yeah, if you're San Antonio and San Antonio's got like sixty million, but the way they handle the cap, they probably wouldn't do it. But yeah, they would do it. Uh, Wiggins to New York because New York's got fifty plus million to spend. They could do it. Dallas won't do it because they've got about twenty plus million. So they could probably make it work, but they won't make it work for that. You know, Detroit. Like a team, uh, I'm just thinking about a team that, that kind of sucks and has no chance the next couple of years. They value those seven, the seven and fourteenth pick. They really like this draft. We'll eat a shit sandwich yeah. with a with a look. Wiggins isn't horrible, but the contract is overs a little bit. But we'll eat that bad contract. We'll get seven and fourteen. Yeah, you know, there's there's a maybe that maybe that'll work long term. Who knows? Bogues, that works. I'm sorry, you're right. Like uh, Detroit, definitely. I, I didn't even figure that. I thought they had a little bit more salary on the books, but all they got is Grant at 20, Corey Joseph at 12-6, and they got Mason Plumlee at 8. So they've probably got about 40-plus million in cap room. They could probably do it there. But here's the thing, Bogues. You're going to give Detroit Wiggins. You're going to give them the two picks. What are you going to get back that's going to really help you? Jeremy Grant, maybe? Yeah, yeah maybe there's a third team you know? involved. Yeah, yeah, Jeremy Grant's the one. But yeah, I mean, look, I'm, I'm just – Saying like a, maybe a, a yeah. team that's just not going to be good. They they eat the they eat the Wiggins thing with the the cherry of seven and fourteen. They maybe get a you know Washington you know potentially, but yeah, I mean I, I guess Wiggins for Beal with two picks. Who knows? Yeah, I think they, they're gonna deal. They're gonna make a deal. I think they make a deal. I don't think they could wait on these two picks 
you know, that are just going to be, oh, they'll probably be good players for sure. But I don't, I, I agree with you. I don't think Steph Curry's waiting. I don't think Klay Thompson's going to wait. You know, in that organization, that fan base and that new building that's very expensive, I don't think they want to wait on it. So I, I agree with you. I think they're going to try to be aggressive making a move. I've heard the rumor has it that they, they, they don't even need a franchise player with the two picks. That they're just going to take an okay player, solid star, you know? like a like a third, fourth tier star. Yeah, we'll watch the space. We need to get Sherwood back on and discuss Warriors. New Orleans, Willie Green hired as a head coach. We mentioned last week. Now, Jock Vaughn comments. I don't know if these were on record, or off record, but they were leaked. That basically said that um, he ran himself out of the race leading up to the hiring because the, um, the GM Griffin, David Griffin, um, basically wanted to have his hands on roster roster building and management. And how everything is ran from a coaching point of view. So, Jacques Vaughn probably saw that as something he didn't want to do. Uh, Willie Green is a rookie head coach, hasn't coached before. You know, maybe, maybe there's some truth to that because he'd be a, a little bit more easier to have your handprint on as a GM. But that's they're pretty pretty interesting comments because you never want to be in a situation where your GM is dictating who you play and where and exactly who you sign and all that kind of stuff. I mean, the, the teams that work best, it's an open collaboration of. Um, debates about all that but you definitely don't want a GM involved around minutes and all that kind of stuff I found those comments uh, pretty intriguing folks it's a new thing that's going around the league it's not league wide yet um, but I would say at least 33% of the league the GM has a lot to say about who you're going to hire who you're going to play and when you're going to play it and they hire most of your staff not all of it but most of it and I think in my opinion, that's very dangerous. That's dangerous because you don't want your coach in your draft room telling you who to draft. You don't want your coach telling you, you know, as a GM who to, you know, who to sign in free agency and all, you know, to do your job for you. As a GM, there's most ninety nine percent of the GMs aren't qualified to do to do that shit anyway. They're usually just getting it off their analytics guy. And I think that it needs to be a collaboration. See, I think. If you get a rookie coach, say Jamal Mosley, okay, Jamal Mosley gets hired, and Willie Green, if you say, hey, Willie, we want you to hire one of the coaches in front of your bench, here's five names, pick one of these guys, they're all ex-head coaches, we really feel comfortable because you've never coached as a head coach before, we want you to have one of these guys that we really feel as though has a great, you know, it'll be a great mentor for you. Then you could hire whoever you want across the board. We don't care. But when you come in and you say, well, you're going to put – like I think the GM should have say in these things. I think they should have a say in your player development because those are assets for your organization and your head coach is going to last an average of three and a half years. We've already done the study. So your player development should be through your organization. I think that there should be a, an understanding from the head coach – to your general manager that the player that you draft needs a certain amount of minutes throughout the year. So whenever they can, please find a certain amount of minutes throughout the year, every month, every six months, every year for this rookie. But as far as your rotations, as far as their coaching hires, I think that it has to be from the head coach because I think all these young coaches have to make mistakes. And they have to get better. And they have to figure it out. And yes, they could need some help from your analytics and things like that for lineups. But you can't be dictating that shit. 
because it's it's fucking bad business, man. Because now most of these head coaches are only going to get one chance, especially the young ones. They're going to get one chance. If they fuck it up, they may never coach again. So you're going to worry about a GM doing that shit for you. And now when I get fired, I can't really explain that because nobody wants to fucking hear it. Because I'm, I'm already yesterday's news. It's a, it's a suicide mission, you know? essentially. It's lose-lose for... For the coach, because if if you do if you if you do well, it's like well, the GM picked your staff. You do bad, it's like well, you're a bad coach. <laughs> it's like, folks, it's a it's a total credit deal. You know, everybody wants to take credit for the whole thing instead of working together. Instead of saying, you know what, I'm not gonna, I I'm not, I can't fire you, and you can't fire me. Let's just fucking do this thing together. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna interfere with you, and you're not gonna interfere with me. I think that's the best way to do it. Yeah, no doubt. It's 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 always it's always hard when you want to look. If it's a rookie head coach, you might say, "Look, we want you to hire a former, you know, head coach or someone that was a head coach as your head assistant, and leave the rest to you." You hear that, and that that's fair enough. But someone dictating your whole staff's interesting. Also, saw Nate McMillan hired his son. Did you see that? No, I didn't. I didn't. He hired his son. Yeah, Jamil McMillan as an assistant <laughs> coach. So that's <laughs> that is interesting. Very very interesting. So you you, you never want to see those kind of hirings, in my opinion, just because it. It doesn't smell right, but just an interesting one that I just I just saw. He actually hired his son, and he, he's had a fantastic year, and you know, deservedly will get you know got an extension and all that kind of stuff. But then to, to go out and well, hire your son folks, is interesting. I mean, look at it from ownership, from management, from coaching. Nepotism is league wide. If some league wide, if somebody has a son, a daughter, now they're gonna be in the team. When they get old enough, they're gonna be part of the team. You could fucking guarantee it. There are some that say, you know what? You're going to start as a low-level employee and work your way up. Or someone is just going to say, fuck it. I don't give a fuck. You know, I don't care if you, if you spent three days in this thing. I'm going to give you a job that pays 300 grand. And you're not going to be qualified for it. I mean, that there's plenty of those motherfuckers in the league too. Don't get me wrong. So, I mean, that's just league-wide. You expect it. Look, I've, I've dealt with both sides of it. Like I, I worked with Austin Ainge, who's Danny Ainge's son, who was an assistant college coach. Like he played at BYU, assistant college coach, you know, and then, you know, and then I think he worked in the front office with the uh, the Celtics for a year and then went to the D-League, coached as a head coach in the D-League for three years and then went back in the front office for da- for Boston and now has worked his way up. But like that is fine. That that worked his way up. He's done a bunch of different things. But then there are some people that says, yeah, you're going to be the v- assistant GM. You know, like you just graduated and you just took your last bong hit from your fucking, gra- you know, from your grad school fucking, you know, fraternity. And now you're going to be an assistant fucking GM of the team who can't, and you can't name five guys in the whole fucking league. Like that, there's sort of two different schools of thought with this thing and i, I don't yeah, know jamel yeah. i don't know jamel too well uh, maybe he's a fantastic i coach, don't either it just it does it does smell a little bit and i'm in the ballpark of, of what you just mentioned if, if my kids and i was involved in a team I, they, they'd be starting as a janitor and working their way up because I, I want them to understand that this isn't you know this isn't a luxury that you just get this isn't something that you just get given to you you need to work up respect the people above you and then slowly climb the ladder i i wouldn't do it the other way around just because i think it's a bad life lesson and life skill and we see it we see it in, on, on you know in all walks of life i think the kids that are the most you know turn into being the most grounded adults in their role as a coach or a or ceo or whatever usually start at the bottom and work their way out the ones that get given it they're you know everyone's snickering and laughing behind their back generally that's just the way it goes and that's the way the world works vaccines pro this is an interesting one so there's some we're not going to have a debate about the vaccine specifically but the nba summer league has announced their vaccine protocol for 2021 summer league 
Fully vaccinated players, no advanced testing required. PCR test upon arrival, that's the quick one. No daily or game day testing, no quarantines for close contact. So if you run into someone that has it, you don't have to quarantine apparently. Um, No restrictions for activities in Las Vegas. Any in-person interactions are fine. Non-vaccinated players, one PCR test within two days prior to traveling to Las Vegas. PCR test upon arrival. Required to undergo daily and game day testing. Seven-day quarantine if a close contact to somebody that has it. Must remain at team's hotel except league or team activity. Any outdoor meal at a restaurant attended only by other players and team attendees. Engage in physical activity outdoors. No large indoor social gatherings so like a like a summer league game um no indoor restaurants bars lounges and indoor entertainment venues like an nba arena you'll be playing the summer league games at and no overnight guest pro so the the working girls in vegas are going to have a few nights off but this was interesting because it's from what i've understood you can still get the virus and pass the virus around even if you are vaxxed i i believe the i could be wrong and i get a lot of shit i'm not an epidemiologist and people on twitter tell me every day but I believe it, the vax prevents the severity of you if you happen to get coronavirus. So these these rules are pretty interesting. I think the writing's on the wall. It's, they're pretty much railroading you into getting the vaccine. Now I'm not uh, I'm not an anti-vaxer for those out there. Um, I'm kind of questionable on, on COVID vax at the moment because I just want to wait and see how it all goes. But all my other vaxes, so I'm kind of in the middle just intrigued by it all, just seeing how it all goes. I know you've had your Vax Pro and had no issues with it, right? Yeah, I was hoping that, um, you know, loss of weight would be one of the side effects. Those motherfuckers were lying to me when I took it. But no, I've, 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 I've taken it. I needed it for travel. You know, I needed it for travel. I was going to Ch- um, Greece and I couldn't get into the country without, you know, without testing. And they, they were comf- more comfortable with me getting vaccinated and traveling to Greece. So, the people that were sending me over there. So I did it. I was fine. My family did it. And yeah, no side effects for me. I'm not an anti-vaxxer or, or, or anti, I, I'm not against people who don't get it. It's your choice. Whatever you want to do, you do. What I have an issue with this, folks, is not, you know, not them sort of pushing you into getting vaccinated. What I can't understand in the NFL, you saw two assistant coaches getting fired in the NFL for not getting vaccinated. Why isn't it the same for the players? So you're going to like, because I've heard, I've well, heard NBA coaches, teams, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Explain that. Yeah, I've heard NBA teams, you can't travel with the team or be with the team or be at the headquarters in certain days if you're not vaccinated. So my question is, why aren't you going to throw this on the players? See, this will make me think as a staff member, I'm a lesser human being than a player. And there's certain things that players should have over staff members. They are the, they are the show. They are the talent in the league and why the league's worth as much money as it is, for sure. But in something like this, you all got to be unified. Either everybody's going to get it or nobody has to get it. And like, that's my thing. Like, if I'm a staff member, I'm, I'm sitting there like, wait a minute, you're going to either threaten to fire me or I can't be with the team because I'm not vaccinated. But like nine out of our 13 players aren't vaccinated and you're OK with that. I would have an issue with that. For sure, but yeah, it's it's it falls on deaf ears, brother. Yeah, it, it I mean, I'm pro-choice, so I mean, I have no issue with people getting the vax if they want to get it. I have no issue with people yeah. who say I, I don't feel comfortable getting it. I want to wait and see. Um, I have no issue either way. I just, I just, it's become, it's it's almost become um, a, a dividing point politically as well. You know, there's, there's it is what it is. But just these rules are interesting. It's just going to be, I'm going to be watching with interest to see how this all goes because it, you know, there's 
you look at politically what France has done. They've now said if, if you don't have your vax, you can't. You basically can't go anywhere. <laughs> like you're a hermit. You're, you can't go to grocery stores. You can't go to restaurants, cafes. We know the French love cafes and croissants and all that kind of stuff. So you can't do anything. So this is starting on that path within the NBA. Um, private organizations, yes, they have a right to do that. But um, it just will be interesting to, to, to watch where it all goes. I know there are, there are uh, a lot of people in the league that are – um, skeptical on it that I've spoken to that there are you know a high percentage have been vaccinated but LeBron James hasn't confirmed you know he's one that rumor has it he hasn't had the vax and he's the superstar of the league and I know there's a lot of players that are kind of I'm just going to wait and see and see how it goes and I think that should be your right as well I don't I don't argue against that so just you know they're, they're basically making it hard for you if you um if you haven't had it that's a lot of extra work you have to do and you're, you're kind of a, a hermit in your room and you're not supposed to leave and I assume they're going to go pretty hard if they find out you've left your room and, and you You've, you've been um, you haven't been vaccinated, but I just wonder if this brings on any appeals in courts and, and wrongful dismissals and all that kind of stuff because it, it can get pretty slippery. I would think that like they're going to start firing some people that don't have it staff wise, and that you're going to see a lot, a lot because like for those NFL coaches, right? Like there's a huge, I mean, it's huge NFL um, COVID protocol for that, and two of these coaches refused to get it, and then they either parted ways or fired the guys, and. They can't work anywhere else because it's the same rules everywhere else. So I think there's definitely going to be lawsuits in the NFL for sure. In the NBA, I'm sure they're going to start firing some people. I'm sure they still got to pay their contracts, of course. But like in the next year or so, they're going to start firing people. They might say, okay, one year, it's okay. Like you could just stay home, do it remote. But like by year two, you're going to have to do this. We're going to fire you. And you're going to see, I I can't guarantee it, but I'm very highly positive that you're going to start seeing a lot of lawsuits from staff members fired, low-level staff members fired from NBA teams for well, sure. Especially with a double standard you mentioned because that that's all you'd bring to, to the court case. You'd say, well, hang on a second. Yeah. If I have to do this but this employee doesn't, that's clear discrimination. So it's going to be it's going to be an interesting time in our world and we're following that um, closely within the NBA. And I've spoken to a few players that even played last season where some teams had actually implemented the same rules already quietly where they'd actually said, I know for a fact one of the teams in the playoffs – did not bring their strength and conditioning coaches, both of them, and their shooting coach into a playoff series because they weren't vaxxed. And uh, from what this player told me, they said that it messed them about a bit. They don't have their strength and conditioning coaches there that, that prep them, that stretch them, and they don't have their main shooting coach there. And it, uh, yeah, it ended up being pretty interesting. So, Ryan Rossillo, pro, you, you put me onto this. I'm talking about media hot takes, break it down for us. Ryan Rossillo basically. He put out a video. He, he has a, a very popular podcast. He does a lot of stuff with Bill Simmons. He's been around forever. Um, I've known him since I was back in Boston. He put out this 13-minute video on YouTube, basically shaming himself and a lot of the other media for sometimes how they cover, not necessarily himself, but a lot of other people on their hot takes as far as like anointing people kings or destroying them in like a one game or a two game stretch. And he just goes out and is very honest about it. Ryan is a very honest dude. I love his podcast. I love when he speaks because he, you know, he watches a ton of film and, he, and he's always working it. And he basically says how the media should be ashamed of themselves of how they cover the league sometimes, or how they just like all these hot takes they have on players and, and teams and things like, you know, talking about Stephen A. Smith calling 
Booker, Kobe, and, you know, other people destroying the Milwaukee Bucks and destroying, you know, Budenhauser, how he coaches. I think he was probably referring to Perkins and some of the talking heads of how they cover things and then how they want to automatically anoint somebody king and then destroy him, you know, in a very short time after that. Um, I, I think it's a very popular thing that's done by the media. And also, like, on one day you love a guy and the next day you hate the guy and there's nothing in between saying, hey, wait a minute, I made a mistake. This is why. It's like you never said it. And they just keep on piling on this bullshit and it just keeps on going and going. I thought it was a great – I thought it was a great video. I watched it like two or three times. Um, like I said, I always like Ryan's takes. What, what do you think? Bob? Yeah, he, he just made some valid points just because there's so much time to fill for these talking heads on media and you look at these TV shows on ESPN and, and, and whatever, right? It's like there's just so much time to fill. And that's why I like you know, not tooting our own horn with this podcast is that we can go for an hour and a half or we can go for two hours and a half with gaze on it. We can go for three hours. We can go for 90 minutes, you know, uh, 60 minutes. The whole point is – we want to give our takes and our analysis on things. And, and if that's it, that's it. We don't want to then be like, have a producer, hey, you need to just just talk shit about something random for 30 minutes. Let's hate on this guy. Like, And that's the unfortunate reality of these shows. They have guaranteed time allotments they need to fill. And that was Rissler's other point is like when they, after they've spoken about, you know, okay, let's break down the finals. Then it's like, okay, is Devin Booker the next Kobe? And you're just like, geez, like it's just it's just too much. It is too much. I'm not a huge fan of it. I think there's there's you know intriguing debates. Like you know, at times you might have debates about older players. I, I don't love them, but they they get people talking. I get it. But like the the Kobe the Kobe Booker thing for me, and we mentioned it um, those comments, and I, I pushed back on that podcast couple of um episodes ago was it's just like what are you doing like but booker's a different and even booker came out and said like don't that's you know let's put that aside like i'm i'm devin booker and kobe's kobe like if i can get there one day great but i'm a long way away from there and he's right it's like why, why do we need to straight away box someone into being because then all that happens then is booker now doesn't win that final series he didn't play particularly well in a couple of the games he's no kobe who the hell said you know and it's like well he didn't say it <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not a fan yeah. of it and i, I liked what russillo said he, he looks very well researched well spoken has great takes so highly recommend he's on with um simmons a fair bit as well and well, he's, he's it, pretty good yeah you know like eight and being david robinson and and all this stuff it's just yeah they just you know what it is bogues it's a nuclear arms race to see who's who was said it first who again all those bullshit stats like this guy was the first guy to do this or first guy to do this or first team to do this everybody wants to be first and they don't care about how they get there. They'll just throw everything out there. And then they'll be like, oh, remember I said this? I was the first to report this. I was the first to say this guy was the next this or this. So they throw all these great things about these players and they want to be the first. They want to take it. You know, they want to like, they want to be the first one. They want to take all the credit. I mean, you know what's sick about the playoffs too, Bogues? A little off topic on it. It's like, Every player that won a championship for Milwaukee, every person who threw a pass to a player, they wanted to take credit for oh, every yeah, I forgot. second. I forgot that they to mention this. Oh my god, bro! Every trainer, coach, junior high coach, third grade guidance counselors. I even saw folks a fucking coach take credit for talking an assistant coach from Milwaukee from working on Wall Street to coaching. Basically taking all of his fucking credit for this guy winning a championship, basically saying, oh, I was the guy who did that. Why do people love to say that shit? Why do everyone wants to take every ounce of credit 
and, and, and squeeze all the fucking oxygen out of the room. I think it being Milwaukee's first cha- championship in, you know, 40, 50 odd years. Without knocking them, I think they overdid it. A former teammate, two former teammates of mine, Michael Red, three actually, Desmond Mason was there, and Brandon Jennings. It was a former teammate of mine, and he's a great kid, but he was on a float to the parade. You know, like it's like, oh man, like that. That was that was a tough one for me to see. I get having the legends, but like you know, Michael Red, Desmond Mason, great people first and foremost. They were there, but it wasn't really about them so much. You know what I mean? But Brandon was like, yeah. when he when I was, I get because he had that infamous Bucks in six interview, you know, ten odd years ago, and I get all that. But I'm like, dude, like, why are you on a float? Like, you know what I mean? Like, I I get it, you were part of the organization, but it's like, oh man, I totally agree. I, I had a, dude, I had a bit of a laugh. There were some shenanigans going on. Not only was he on the float, he was making a ass out of himself. Like, he must have guzzled about eighty two beers in that two hour period. Pouring it on himself, spitting into the crowd in a COVID in a COVID situation, just spitting out beer in an open area. I mean, I don't care about that, but it's just like, yeah, it would, dude. It was. I'm sorry, I cut you off. What were you What were you saying on that? It's just yeah. I mean, the, the the people that should be celebrated, in my opinion, the 15 players in the squad, your assistants and your staff, and that, and that's kind of it, right? Like, I mean, the legends and all that. Like, they show up to the game, they do a few interviews. That's it. It's about those players that won it. They did it, and I wouldn't, you know, to be honest. Like, I want to chip with Golden State, but if Golden, if uh, Milwaukee. If I managed to get out there, I would have went. If I wasn't in Australia, I would have watched the game, congratulated him, and then got my ass away from the cameras. It wasn't I – did, I did nothing, you know, to contribute to those guys. You might say, oh, you were there at one the, point and whatever, and that's what I struggled with. The trainers and shooting coaches are unbelievable. Like, if you work with a player one time in their 30 years of life, you're going you're gonna to come up with that picture – and you're going to tweet it out when they win a championship. <laughs> it is fucking disgusting. The grifting's all time. It definitely, when there's a chip, it definitely, uh, here's a photo of when I told him to, uh, when I told Giannis to take 12 seconds to shoot the free throws, that was me. Yeah. Here's a photo of me talking yeah. for those for those 12 seconds. You, you can see I'm looking at my watch because I was timing it, you know, <laughs> just like, all right, buddy. Yeah, you have like a, you have a pocket watch you take a picture of. I mean, give me a fucking break. Come yeah, on. I mean, yeah, it, it is interesting. And that, I, I definitely had a laugh at that. And each to their own, you know, that's all, that's all good and well. But I, I just couldn't, I just couldn't do it. That's just me. And I, I think the other thing that I struggle with, and they got some flack and it is historic, is the owners getting the trophy um, first is, is something that, it's been hotly debated the last week and should be. It's just a bad look, in my opinion. I think, yes, they own the team, but that thing goes to the blood, sweat, and tears first. It goes to, you know, um, Giannis, the coaching staff, the players, and then, you know, have your owners come on and, and, and handle the trophy. But the fact that it just it just killed the moment. I don't know if you watched it, but they handed the trophy to the yeah, owners and it just went flat and quiet. And everyone was like, what the hell is going on? Who are, no offense to the owners, but they're, they're not, a lot of times they're unrecognizable and you know they're billionaires and millionaires, whatever, but they're not recognizable faces. So a lot of times people are like, is that the GM? Like, who is that guy? You know what I mean? So it just, it just kind of dulls the moment and then it goes back to the players and then the crowd gets up, up, up on their feet again. But I think the owners, the owner thing should be something they put you know, third or fourth in line, in my opinion. Yeah, Bogues. I mean, the owners today aren't 75-year-old oil men that don't care, you know, like they used to be. Right? They were out of the way a lot of times. Yeah, they, they, they'd be in the locker room with the, with the trophy at some point. But you have a lot of younger people. And when I say younger, I'm not saying third, 20s and 30s, but you, know, you have people in their 40s and 50s and then the social media world and everybody's everybody wants to do their deal, you know, and, and be seen. And, you know, a lot of times you have ownership groups with like 20 people in them. You know, it's not just a one person sometimes. And yeah, it's a little uncomfortable. But then again, those guys did pay the 
you know, pay the three billion to keep them in, and or whatever they pay. I'm not three billion; it's not worth that. But like, you know, that ownership group, that that owner, uh, Lazarus, got a decent, uh, a pretty good story about working his way to nothing, you know, to doing what he's doing today. But I agree with you. Like sometimes they take the moment away, but it is what it is. Like you know, yeah, you still celebrate I, it, I, just I, not first, it, not first. You celebrate it, be, yeah, be in the group photo, sure. all that kind of stuff. But let's just you know. Give it to the players first, and then then we can do all those formalities after it. In, in my opinion, and, and you know, I, I could be wrong; people could disagree. But most people, I think, had said like, "What the hell is this?" But just one of those things. <laughs> yeah. David Mintz signs with Reebok, so a young high school athlete um, before attending Kentucky. This is an interesting one because what is Kentucky? They're a Nike school, right? So he, he's he's now signed with a rival brand. But I did some research on this when you sent it to me. So the deal pertains to only away from the court pro and away from basketball. Right. So he's only allowed to wear his Reebok gear and promote it in a casual sense. He can't do, I believe, he can't do anything with a Kentucky uniform and Reebok mm-hmm. together. But just interesting the fact that you know Kentucky is a huge, huge Nike school. Um, there's a lot of schools out there that are known. Oregon's a Nike school. You know, schools that you just know they're Nike or the Adidas or their Reebok, whatever. And just interesting that he went with a rival brand. But I mean, I, I wonder what that brand really gets out of it if they can't really promote this kid playing basketball which is why he's in Reebok it's an interesting one yeah because Reebok has really been out of the basketball game for a while they they sort of downshifted what they did and, and maybe a little bit like Puma where they wanted to do more lifestyle you know off the court sort of just lifestyle shoes and things um a lot most of these shoe companies want to have the relationship with these kids early um I don't know anything about these NIL contracts but I'm wondering if they have like they have an option or they or the kid has an option to sign with them. And when he goes eventually, when he goes pro, I'm not sure about how the deals are structured. But yeah, like he can't wear it on the court. He can't wear it in practice. He can wear it around campus, but he can't do everything away from the court. So what, what's weird with these shoe companies, folks, they put so much money into these kids. Now they're actually putting real money into it. They put all the money into like the AU teams, paying the coaches and, you know, paying the teams to, to play under their umbrella. But it doesn't really matter because the kids don't really care. They get the gear and stuff, but they, they only care about who gives them the most money when they're negotiating their deal when they're pros. So, yeah, they're, they're getting in with the kid. They're having a relationship with them. And now if he becomes a pro, maybe they're thinking because of that relationship that of the year they spent in their gear and, and sort of talking to the kid and, and befriending him, maybe he'll sign with them, you know, when it time when it turns when it's time to turn pro. But it's a weird deal uh, just because of Kentucky being such a Nike school. And every picture that that kid's going to take on the court is going to be with the Nike shoe. So, may, like – Maybe they're gonna do ads and stuff in Slam Magazine with him wearing you know his Reeboks out, you know, out going to a Waffle House in fucking you know downtown Lexington, Kentucky. I I don't know, but it is a weird deal. It is a weird deal. Yeah, I, mean, I butchered his name. It's Davion Mintz, um, but apparently a big following on social media. Is that right? Yeah, I think he's got a pretty big following. Um, he's got a pretty a pretty big following. Did we talk about the Mikey Williams kid? That that's I think he's out of California, the high school kid that signed with uh, one of the bigger agents. I forgot, but he signed. Uh, he's got like five million um, social media followers across his all of his platforms, and the deal's supposed to be for millions. He's only a six, He's only entering. I think he's entering his either junior or senior year in high school. His name's Mikey Williams. He's a big time recruit. I think he's out of San Diego. I think he's going to be a senior in high school, and he just signed 
Um, he signed this big, I, I got Leon Rose in my head, but it's not. Um, but anyways, he signed this deal with this agency for the NIL thing. And it's supposed to be worth millions of dollars, like, you know, with, you know, before he even gets into college. You know, we talk about this stuff, folks. I, I, I'm, I'm not liking, I like the fact that these kids can make money, but I don't like the fact that what it's going to do to their mentality before they become a pro. And that's the big thing. Like when guys went to college for three or four years and then went to be pros, the mentality of being a pro, usually even if their college coach sucked, which in a lot of cases he did, they did. But like they would mature a little bit, played in some big games. They, they have some maturity. Then they get all their money when they get to the pros. And then like, you know, some of them are mature, some of them aren't, but at least they had some time to mature. They didn't have a lot of money, even if they were getting paid by their college under the table. Like, it wasn't a lot, a lot of money. It wasn't life-changing money. But a lot of these kids are going to be having this life-changing money. Only a few of them are, not a lot of them, but a few of them are already going to make a million dollars a year or $800,000 a year before they get to the NBA. Like, what is that going to do to their work ethic? The work ethic of these kids, for the most part, are in the shitter as it is. Imagine like you're making a million dollars a year or eight hundred thousand dollars a year, and then some fucking college coach is gonna tell you you got to buy the balls anyway, and some college coach is gonna tell you yeah you got to come in for conditioning tomorrow at six a.m. Like I'm just wondering what what the mentality is gonna be of those kids. Yeah, there'll be a bit of entitlement there. Got an apparel deal worth more than what your coach is on. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Jeff Schwartz, by the way, Jeff Schwartz is the agent. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just, it's just interesting to see how it's changing. How, how the you know the, the worms turning towards being able to you know like what I've always said that college athletes should get something. I think now it's now that the, the water main is burst, and now it's just a, a free for all. So it'll be interesting to watch and see how it goes. But um. I wonder if schools start putting in provisions where they can protect their brands now because is Kentucky as valuable as a as a um, brand to, as a as a school to Nike now if players can sign with rivals even though they're not wearing them on the court they're still promoting them on social media it's crazy so that'll be interesting yeah no these schools now like North Carolina is actually starting programs now to actually the kids that sign at their schools they're going to introduce them to the sponsors that sponsor their programs there, there are a few there's a quite a there's about five or six teams that really make money in college texas is one of the biggest ohio state north carolina duke kentucky you know kansas probably and, and there's a few others but imagine all the millions of dollars they get in sponsorship the, the, the companies that like name the arena and and things like that imagine now with these schools that have all this money in their brand now, like t- like enticing kids to sign with them because you're going to introduce them to the CEO of like Papa John's pizza or CEO, of, like Phil Knight at Nike, if you're Oregon or, you know, whatever, you know, and having the opportunity to sign sponsorship deals in college because of the relationships that these schools have with these, these companies. It's a, uh, you know, imagine if you're Wichita state and you're trying to compete with this shit. You know, and now it's all over again, Bogues. Like, like the the whole discrepancy thing is is starting all over. That's the bit that's been the fight for thirty years, be, because not everybody's on a level playing field. And now it's it's going to be like this. Like everybody thought, well, oh, okay, now every, all these kids can make all this money. Everybody's on an even you know even playing field. The money you're going to get from North Carolina, Duke, and Kentucky, you know, as far as your marketing dollars. Is a little bit different than if you're going to sign with Boston College or fucking Clemson or someone like that. You know what I'm saying? Oh, no doubt. 
no doubt. And that's why you just look at it as a whole. It's just it's just going to be interesting to see what happens, you know, because I think the the value for these schools now, they're going to lose some money um, from sponsors. It's just not going to be as valuable. Nike might not pay $10 million a year anymore because they might say, oh, well, you know, we're only going to pay five now. So I think it'll dilute that a little bit. But we'll watch that space. The Olympics begin tonight at the time of recording. It's been interesting. I watched a little bit of the opening ceremonies. I'm not an open, open, open ceremony guy, pro. I actually, I have not attended one of them. I've been to three Olympic Games. Really? No, no. Three Olympic Games have not attended one. It was just something I always did. The reason being, we usually would play either the next day or the day after. And these opening ceremonies for the athletes, okay, they are great. You walk around a track, you're on TV, but it's a shit show of a day. Like it's- I heard. It's basically, a in some countries, Beijing, I think it was a 10-hour ordeal all up in, in humid, you know, 30 degrees Celsius, 90 degree Fahrenheit weather in China because you got a bus. Every country has to bus out of the village. Then you get to your waiting bays. They get you there two, three hours earlier. Then each country has to go. Then you got to wait for all the countries to finish. And then, you know, in China, for instance, I think- a, I think Australia was kind of towards the end of the alphabet, I believe. Um, so we were one of the last countries out. You're sitting just in humid heat. There's no food there. You know what I mean? Like, and now top that off with coronavirus restrictions, wearing a mask. Um, I, I wouldn't have went again if I was there, if I was there this time. But I actually caught a bit of it on TV, and it it just felt just felt dystopian, man. Like no fans. You got these athletes waving. <laughs> It's like <laughs> waving to a fucking drone. Yeah, who are you waving to? But I guess they're told away for TV. It just looked it just looked Hollywood produced without anyone in the theater watching it, you know? And um that's the unfortunate reality of what we're in in the world with coronavirus. But I don't know if you saw you it. Know, it's great for TV. You know what they're waving at, folks? They're waving goodbye to uh, Japan's $25 billion they're going to lose in the fucking Olympics. They were actually flying away money, yen, on a fucking drone. And you're just waving goodbye to that $25 billion that they're going to take a fucking bath on that thing. It's not good. Well, Australia got 2032, as we mentioned last time, competing against absolutely no one because I don't think anyone wants that shit anymore. But anyhow, look, it, it is Olympics. The TV ratings were up, pro, because everyone's, at least in Australia, everyone's locked down in their house still. <laughs> so I guess that's the one <laughs> positive. But I just, it just hit me watching it like, man, like there's a pandemic, coronavirus, but geez, like, you know, and then top that off, there's, there's massive protests in Japan because the poor bastards in Japan are in a state of emergency. They're completely locked down. They're not allowed to leave their homes. Yet you've got athletes flying from all around the world for an Olympic Games. Kind of tough for your own people, in my opinion, pro. I think if, if you've set this precedent of, not letting your own people out of their homes for months on end and you're busing and flying thousands and upon thousands of athletes and staff around your city. It's kind of a, it's a tricky situation. And, you know, there's, there's, for those that haven't seen the athletes outside of all their um, arenas and stadiums, there's shitloads of Japanese people protesting. So it's going to be an interesting one. Well, folks, they were, there was actually Japanese Americans protesting outside my development and in my neighborhood begging me not to pick any Japanese athletes or teams for gold medals on this fucking show. So that's the only protest that I've been seeing around here. So, but yeah, I mean, it's tough, man. I mean, especially what they're going through with the lockdowns and the state of emergency. Imagine if you're a poor, you know, poor prick that lives in, you know, in, in somewhere in Japan and, you know, you, all, you got all this stuff going, you got spikes in numbers and people dying and uh, can't get vaccinated if you want to get vaccinated. And then they're celebrating these games in your country. It, it, it seems a little bit weird, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, it is. Um, it is. No, it's not a good look. Yeah. The smell test, the pub test, as we say in Australia, it's not not good, but hopefully it's a 
hassle free Olympics other than that and they can get it get in and get out and there's no spikes from it and Australia can win a gold medal in basketball we'll watch that space stats useful or useless Devin Booker has the most points scored in a player's first postseason run in NBA history useful or useless I think it's pretty useful especially how far he went you know how far he went in the tournament I, if, if you would have said that like he had the most points averaged in his first playoff series and then he lost 4-0 and his team lost by 30 every night I'd say it was a bullshit stat I would say it's pretty useful I mean I mean he's gone like I said he's in in your first playoffs usually your first playoffs is like a you know it's it's just a test to see you know usually your first playoffs you don't do all that well and then it's it's just you learn from it I mean going all the way to the finals in your first run and you, you score all those points and you do that well, I think it's pretty useful. What do you think? Yeah, I think it is. I think it's – it's. remember, it's not points per game. It is – for those listening, it is to- – I think it's total points scored. So, that's what – that was mm-hmm. a tricky thing in this stat, the way they worded it. You know, you can obviously have more points scored. If your if your team goes seven games every series, you've got a better chance of breaking that record. But, yeah, he, he had a phenomenal first run. And he's a great player. I mean, he has been the last mm-hmm. couple of seasons, just hasn't won. So, I think, not, you know, more people will know his name now and hopefully he continues on that trajectory. But I, I think it was a useful one. We'll go with – the next one in Space Jam 2 Pro. Have you seen that movie yet, by the way? Uh, no, I have not seen it yet. Well, my kids want to see it, so that's an unf- unfortunate reality for me. I might, <laughs> I might have to see it. Anyway, in Space Jam 2, the words Warner Brothers were shown or said 38 times. That's 10 times the amount of baskets LeBron made in the entire movie, which is four. That's a fucking spoiler. Useless or useful? I don't know. I'd say pretty fucking useless, to be honest with you. I mean, it's useless. Yeah, it's useless, but it's yeah. So he's saying Warner Brothers thirty-eight times. <laughs> but you pay LeBron about five. Oh, you pay Clutch and LeBron about five hundred fucking million, and he only scored four baskets. That's pretty fucking bullshit, to be honest with you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Interesting one, anyway, for Space Jam fans. Hopefully, I've heard it's not the greatest flick. LeBron aside, I heard it's pretty pretty poor compared to the. MJ1, but we'll see. Um, the kids have seen the MJ1, and we'll let them be the judge. Next one, no player has ever averaged 30, 10, and 5 on 60% field goal percentage until Giannis. 32.3 points per game, 13 rebounds, 5.6 assists, 1.4 steals, 1.2 blocks, and a 61.2% from the field. Pro, useful or useless? Uh, very useful. That's a, I mean, is that for a playoff or a final, Bogues? I believe it's... Finals, yeah, finals. Yeah, I mean, that's a pretty damn good fucking finals. And, and that's six games too. So, I mean, it did extend a little bit out. And I mean, those are, those are some big time numbers, man. The extension doesn't really matter because it's average, it's not total. So, phenomenal numbers. Yeah, yeah, I agree. In a finals, in the kids' first finals, you know, I mean, that's uh, that's pretty that's pretty big time. And a pretty simple stat. So, it's not overly done for me. That's why I liked it. 30, 10, and 5, 6% field goal percentage. Nice and simple. He's not talking about a Wednesday or a Saturday or a sunny day. (laughs) Unfortunately. Nice, good stat. Very, very useful. Last one. Chris Paul is the first ever player to lose four best of seven series where his team led 2-0. The only other player with three was, do you know, without cheating? Oh, man. I don't. I don't. Andrew Bogut? No, just joking. Oh, wow. Former teammate of Chris Paul's. Former teammate. Former teammate. Oh, um, not DeAndre Jordan. Probably Blake Griffin. There you go. Blake Griffin has three. Ah. So Chris Paul has led 2-0 in four best of seven series and lost them all. Useful or useless? I think it's pretty useful. I mean, that's four series and best of seven up 2-0. And all those teams, you were the best player. You were, well, you're the best player on most of them. I would say it's it's debatable this time, but... 
that's pretty useful to, to, to see that. I mean, a lot of times in these situations, like just like, like when you talk about plus minus in basketball, it's not just you. But when you're the best player and you have good teams and you're up 2-0, I think it's pretty I think it's a pretty useful stat. What do you think? Yeah, it's alarmingly useful. I mean, he's been in some one was the infamous year. We thought Clippers were our big rivals in Golden State, obviously, and we thought we we're gonna get them in the conference finals. Um, I believe it was or, or the yeah, was it the conference finals or the second round? Either way, and it was it was that series they played Houston and and, and Josh Smith, I think, hit all those threes. Which was just just crazy, and they they ended up coming back and beating them, and we played Houston. So I, I remember one of those vividly because we were sitting around in our practice facility watching the game. We were basically prepping for the Clippers because they're up three one, and they ended up ended up losing it. So anyhow, what do you got for us? Fact or fake news, folks? Here's what I got for you, brother. First one: Now that Giannis didn't jump ship to a super team and won a championship, this will put an end to super teams. Fake news. It won't. I don't believe it will. Hopefully, maybe maybe it grabs a. F- 10% of the league, maybe 10% of the stars might now, you know, do, do, the, do the thing Giannis did. But I think the majority, fake news, bro. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I said it a little earlier in the pod. I think that like you'll see a little bit of an uptick of people maybe staying that you would have thought might have left after their second contract. But I think that, again, the majority of the league would rather take the path of the least resistance and they'll, they'll try to team up with guys to make it a little easier on them to win a championship rather than saying, you know what, I'm going to stay, you know, I'm going to stay in Detroit or I'm going to stay, I'm going to stay in New Orleans or I'm going to stay somewhere. I'm going to go somewhere else in either a better city, a city with two other players or one other player on it. I agree. I think, yeah, I don't, I, I, I say it's fake news. Okay, after a disastrous 2021 season, the Lakers will make a big move and bring in a third all-star player. Fact, they're all in. As, as I mentioned, similar to the Warriors story, in my opinion. They've got LeBron aging. AD's not getting any younger. He's got some injuries to deal with. They need that, that third wheel. And I know LeBron's going to be going gung-ho to try and figure out a way to do that. So, fact. So, you're going to say that they're going to bring in a player that's going to be in the top 35, 30 to 35 in the league off of what they have in their roster. Okay. Well, they're going to yep. try. I think they're going to definitely try. Yeah. Uh, whether it happens or not, but yeah, they, they will definitely. Be, I, think, I, think they'll, I think they'll figure it out. The Lakers always figure it out with big names. They do. And they'll they'll figure they'll they'll shuffle some deck chairs around and get it done. Yeah, with clutch, I could see that. But you know what? I'm gonna as usual. I'm gonna be the fucking oddball here and say they will not. I say it's fake news. I say they make a move, but I or, or multiple moves. But I just don't think that unless it's a sign and trade for Schroeder, put Kuzma in it. Even with that, I can't see getting a Bradley Beal or or someone like that. But maybe a Chris Paul. That's a possibility, but I still doubt it. I'm gonna say fake news. I'll say fake news on that one. All right, last thing, Bogues. For the next five years, the MVP will be locked up by a non-American born will be locked up by non-American born players in the next five years. Oh, it's a tough one. So the names we're working with is Giannis, Jokic, Luca. Who else am I missing? Mm-hmm. Anyone else? Um, I mean, besides maybe Joel Embiid, but I don't I don't know if he was born in the United States or not. Oh, I, I know he went to school there. here. Ooh, that changes things. Still yeah. KD, not five years. If you would have said three, I would say fact. But nah, five years is a long time. Um, I will say fake news on that one. I'm going to say fact. I'm going to say fact. Um, the reason being, the only guy that really has a chance in the next year or two off the bat would be Durant. But he is 32. Steph? So, I mean, he, I, don't, I don't know if he's going to play game, like play less games and 
you know, not be factored in. I mean, MVP is a little bit different than winning a championship and keeping your team going forward, especially with, you know, players freaking out about injuries and, you know, and resting and things. I don't think Zion will be good enough to win an MVP. I think Booker, I think I got Booker at like 10 right now in the league, top 10, probably the 10th best player. He might have a chance. Steph Curry, Dame Lillard. Steph Curry and Dame Lillard will have chances for sure. But again, Steph's 33 and Dame, I mean, Dame could put up a lot of points and, and put up a lot of stats. He could be an MVP. But I think Luka, I mean, I think Luka, Jokic, and Giannis, I think, you know, especially I think where people, if Giannis was going to take a hit in his sort of ranking and things, he would have probably taken a, a little bit of a hit now in the last year, like before the championship. Now that like everybody's all over him as far as being, a, you know, the greatest thing since sliced bread. I think he's going to be in the mix a long time. I think Jokic will be in the mix. Luka and Embiid, you know, if he could stay healthy enough, he could be in the conversation as well. So I say, I say that's fact. Fair enough. Five years, a long time though, pro. So we'll, we'll watch that. Space. No doubt. All right, Q and A's. Finally, got a chance to get through some of these. Appreciate everyone sending them in every week. But when we have a guest like Gaze and it goes overtime, we um we just don't have time. Otherwise, it'd be an eight hour podcast, and Pro would get a little cranky. So we'll start <laughs> with the first question. Hi, Andrew and Pro, loving all the podcast bogues. Now that the Olympics are underway, how does retirement feel? Do you have any regret- regrets calling the end to your career? I'm asking because part of me wishes we could have seen you line up in the green and gold again. Second part of the question: You've always seemed to find your groove. You've seemed to find your groove in retirement, but that isn't always the case for NBA players. Do you think the NBA is doing enough to support athletes post-career? Cheers, Tom Smith from Kangaroo Island. To be honest with you, it's really hit home that I'm retired this last week or two watching the Boomers and not being part of it. So it's it's definitely definitely hurt a little bit mentally at times, but then you know, knowing the body is not hurting every day and I can kind of go about my daily business is the bonus, but I'm not going to lie this last Last couple of weeks has been tough. Commentating, it's probably going to be even even more tough mentally once it's all done. Not being there, even for the wins and the losses. Losses, you think, shit, maybe I could have been there and helped for five minutes a game. Wins, you're like, damn, I feel like I'm, I'm FOMOing, I'm missing out, you know? So definitely um, definitely tough to, to watch, but that's part of what every athlete goes through. As far as retirement, I try to just keep busy somewhat when I was done and that was hard with lockdowns and, and there were days where it's tough I'm not going to lie those days you miss the camaraderie and the banter and talking shit with guys and everything comes about team sports at a high level you definitely miss that and that's not something that you can just stick a band-aid over and and, and move on um, so it's something you got to adapt to podcasting has been a big part of that talking with everyone out there and shooting the shit about basketball has been really fun but the kids have taken up a lot of time so being able to be at home and and really get involved with their lives much more than than usually can when you got a full-time job has been a blessing that at times is hard as shit like i commend stay-at-home mums I, I really don't know how they don't just rip their hair out on a daily basis at times <laughs> these little bastards just causing problems but um they do a fantastic job so i've done all that but as far as second part of your question do the nba do enough support they look the nba mbpa the play association and the nba they try to they try to prepare you as best they can. Like they try to basically say what are your plans for post-sport now when i heard that as a 20 21 year old draft pick i was like get the hell out of my house. All I'm thinking about is basketball, but you kind of get it. They try to prepare you as much as they can. That's just a part of their programs because they understand that, you know, player going bankrupt that made a hundred million is not good for the NBA's brand. It's not good for any anyone. That's not a positive story. So they've tried to help help players through that, but it's hard. You go from routine base to wake up at nine, training at 11, get your lifting, get your mealing. Everything's you, you, you as an athlete. When you retire, it's no longer about you. It's like, hey, go change that nappy. Hey, we're doing this or hey, we're doing that. So um, it's an adjustment. And I'm not going to lie, there were days I struggled with it. There were days I 
I was probably on my wife and kids too much just because I was used to being in that team environment where you you know nitpick in like hey how do we score on this play how do we stop this play so then you kind of take it out on your kids and wife at times and thankfully my wife understood that at times but that's just something you got to deal with and I mean the NBA does as best they can but if you don't have you got to find some sort of passion at times away from the court that you can transition into and probably take that up a little bit more full-time when you retire pro. I don't know if you have any advice around around retirement for players. <laughs> no, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of bad stories of players who retire. There's a lot of bad stories because they never took the time to learn about financial responsibility. And I understand that when you're young you don't want to hear it. And then a lot of times when it's presented it's, it's presented in a condescending way to these players, especially when they're young. I think they really need to have a serious discussion with players throughout their career about fiscal responsibility. I think with this NIL thing in college, I think that they have to hit them early about financial and fiscal responsibility, how to balance a checkbook, how do you set your budget, you know, these war stories about players who, you know, you know, spend all their money or, you know, their livelihood for 15 years was, let's be honest, was like chasing women at night, playing, drinking, going out, spending all this money because they always had money coming in. And then when they, they go from like, you know, when they go from the rookie contract to making 18, 20, even though it's a lot of money, you don't think they're going to piss through. And then you're like last few years, you're making mid-level exceptions. So you go from like 19, 20 to like seven, eight, nine, and then you go minimum two, eight. And now you're out of the league or you're an assistant coach making 80 to a hundred. Like, and now you're still blowing the money. Like you're making 18 million and, and now you're out. It, it, it's going to be a really cold, dark life going forward. I think the NBA really has to do a better job with – they do a great job with, like, giving them opportunities and things. But I've seen those presentations that they give players. They're not great. I think they got to really take a serious tone to it. First of all, give them the fucking – like, the only way NBA players, in my opinion – folks, look, I'm a fucking mutant, right? Like, I'm a fucking ugly motherfucker, 500 fucking pounds, never played. But one thing I can do is get through the players because I usually give them – the war stories and the horror stories about players who didn't make it like on the court, but on the off the court stuff, you got to give them the stories of the Antoine Walkers of the Vin Bakers of the, you know, the players who ran Allen Iverson, the guys who ran through their shit. And like the, even worse than that, the guys that are homeless that weren't NBA all-stars, the guys that went, played three years, but ran through all their fucking money. I think they need that fiscal responsibility and then how to get a job, how to, you know, do the day-to-day. And I think they need to do a better job of that because I've seen what they do with players. I've sat in those rookie, uh, rookie meetings in Vegas and they're a fucking joke, to be honest with you. At the same time, Pro, there's a personal responsibility that also comes and and, and I'm not going to lie. You always, when you're in those meetings, you're like, oh, it's not going to be me. And the biggest problem yeah. isn't so much retirement. It's the financial side of it is because you can enjoy that life of luxury spending and new car every other month and you know different different houses in different cities while you're making 15 20 million even 10 million even 8 million right but you got to figure out mm-hmm. that that's going to dry that's that that's that that water faucet's going to turn off right and then you got to mm-hmm. figure out okay i need some passive ingress, uh, investments so what do i need to live right now outside of spending like an idiot on, on luxury goods okay i need this much so then you need to invest to give yourself a return it's, it's basic you know the financial advice is hard i, I emphasize you know guys go and do a class 
which I did online around personal wealth management because it changed the world for me about yeah. figuring things out. And that's what they should be doing. It shouldn't be you know, a lot of those meetings are done after training sessions. You've trained for two hours, you've lifted weights, you just want to get home. Guys aren't paying attention. They're mm-hmm. on their phones, they're asleep. And the, the, the MBA, PA, and the MBA at times do them to tick a box. Oh, we did it. You didn't listen, but they're not the best environments for them. And then you've got the rookie initiations. It's an absolute shit show. They've got, they've got you cooped up in a seminar room. Well, they did. I don't know if it's still the same when I went and it was you know, eight hours, yeah. of, eight hours of lectures from all these different speakers, and after like an hour and fifteen minutes of it, you're like, "What is this shit?" Like, uh, you know, it just, it just doesn't. It's not going to sink in. Guys aren't going to take it in. So the financial literacy one's a big one. You need to teach financial literacy and how to understand yeah. even what your financial people are telling you in a meeting, and that's what's missed. And I think a lot of it spirals when guys lose money and don't have that sense of belonging to a community or a group or a hobby or a passion that that the NBA was for him, you now feel like you're on the outer and you know, that's just the unfortunate reality. And it's 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 a hard thing to do. Everyone goes through it in different forms of life if you've changed jobs or changed professions. But the drop from being a star athlete on the world stage, big money to you know, you're an everyday Joe now. It, it, it's some guys can't accept that neither, and that's it's a mental challenge um, that everyone has to go through. That's that's a professional athlete. Yeah, instead of 28 fucking player development guys, why not hire 21 player development guys and hire about six more people? You know, hanging with your young players as far as t- showing them and, and regularly meeting with them and talking to them about that because like 99 percent of the players that play in the league ain't going to play for one team, and most of the careers are going to last five years or less. So they need to really understand it when they get in the league and because it could be it could be very much rewarding. I think Rick Carlisle told a story about Nazi Muhammad about like most of the his career he just spent his like Nike check or something like that where he put himself on a budget and he put all his check you know put all his money away. And then you hear about those stories about guys like that that have plenty of money now. You know, they invested it well. They they didn't like blow, you know, they didn't blow their money on stuff. Jamal Mashburn's like that. So, I mean, like those guys should be speaking to the league about what uh, players, about what they did and and things. I mean, I guess it's easy for me to say they should be doing this, should be doing that. But, like, yeah, I think you're right. I think the financial literacy. You just part. get caught up in, there's a million dollars being deposited in your account every two weeks, you know, and it's never mm-hmm. going to run dry. It runs dry, especially when you own multiple properties around the world, land tax and all that. And I think the agents play a big part in this too. These, these, you know, there's these agents that are taking three, four, five percent of playing contracts and twenty percent of marketing. They can almost employ someone to help you with that. Not, not a financial advisor. Not someone that's telling you put your money here. Someone no. that's actually teaching you how to pay your bills, how to invest, how to log into your web, you know, stock exchange online to check your stocks and how it all works and dumb it down. And I got to a point where I wasn't scared to ask questions no matter how stupid they sounded. I mean, I'm paying these people, financial advisors, I'm going to I'm going to, you know, pick their brain on things and that's where it's the agents in my opinion, it's you know, they love taking that check and they love taking that percentage, but you know, they their player falls out of the league and they never hear from them again, but how about investing back into your players as well? So, anyway, thanks we can go on that forever. Thanks for that question. Tom, next one. Hey, gents. Love the gaze chat. Bogues, in your college career, you were a good outside shooter hitting threes, dominating. Were you told not to do it in the NBA? Do you still do it in practice, just not the games? And if you came into the league now, would you have an even better career being an athletic Brook Lopez type? Big Duncan and hitting threes. Two, what's the difference between playing in the NBA compared to the Olympics? Like, what are the games village like? And pro, probably a question that's going to be very tough. You can only eat one meal for the rest of your life. Greek seafood or McDonald's. Love the work, fellas. That's from Ray Romanus. And I will start off. You can think about your food, pro. I doubt it takes you too long. But yeah, look, I, I wasn't a 
a heavy three-point shooter, mass three-point shooter. You know, I was hitting on just under one a game in college and like a low 30s clip. So shot a lot early on in my junior career. And I guess getting to the NBA, the line was a bit further out. I, I kind of got drafted in the era of bigs don't go out on the perimeter. They stay on the block and, and just, just never really kind of worked on it as much as I probably should have, thinking that this isn't a part of my game where I'm going to be effective on the floor, especially you know in the, in the mid-2000s. It was all your four and five men were generally on the block playing inside out, high, low, that's just the style of game. And then as Pro said, the, the game started to change probably five, six years ago. And those kind of big men, you know, factored out, but thankfully I could still rebound and block shots. But internationally, I shot them a fair bit. I think in the 08 Olympics, I was, Pro, this might shock you, but the 08 Olympics, I believe I was top five for three-point field goal percentage at a decent clip. I think I hit five or six for the tournament. So have ha- had some success shooting it. And then the arm injury, you know, I'm not going to say that was the only factor because I wasn't shooting them a lot in the NBA. But once once that all went out the window, my, my jumper from outside of the paint just mentally and physically went out the window and just something I had to adjust with. So the difference between NBA and the Olympics and the village and all that is it's just it's a month straight commitment. So you're not going home. You don't have time with your family. You just basically feel like you're on the road for the whole time as every other country and you just got to dig in and, and really give it a good crack. But um, as we mentioned last week, the good thing about international is it's much more team orientated. There's no superstar calls. Um, it's probably a bit more physical to be honest with you. No defensive three seconds. So a little bit of, of, a, of an adjustment when you go from NBA to FIBA and vice versa. But for the most part, they both have their pros and cons. And it was um, obviously a blessing to be able to go to three Olympics myself. Pro, what do you got food-wise? Man, that's a tough one. Actually, it's not that tough. Greek seafood for sure. Although if, they, if McDonald's could come up with a filet of Greek fish instead of just a filet of fish, I'd be down for that. But believe it or not, I'm not a huge McDonald's guy. I'm a huge guy that likes McDonald's, but I love their breakfast. I don't really, I haven't really eaten a McDonald's. If it wasn't a breakfast deal, I really haven't eaten a McDonald's in about five or six years, if, if you want to believe that or not. But uh, as much as I like to talk shit about, you know, eating McDonald's all the time and stuff, but uh, I love the Greek seafood you can't beat, man. Especially, especially when you're on the water, it's, it's, uh, it's something pretty big time. But back in the day, I put some fucking damage into that shit. And I worked at McDonald's, folks. It's one of my first jobs I've ever had. And ironically enough, that McDonald's ain't in business anymore, so it could have a correlation. Yeah, and you didn't get paid in cash. <laughs> no, I just paid me in cheeseburgers. I was like, I was like, the, I was like Wimpy from fucking Popeye. Yeah, you can't, you can't be the Greek seafood with olive oil. Next question is that. Is that it for Ben and the Sixers? Surely they show one more year of faith and trust the process. Feel bad for him and always defended him, but not after he bailed on the boomers. Everyone is hating on Ben. And if there was anything that would have helped his cause, it would have been to get to get the Aussies behind him. Love you, Bose. That's from Josh Lafner. Leif- totally agree with you. And we mentioned this. I think him being part of that boomers program after the horrendous finish of the season that he had, it would have done wonders for him. You look at what Matisse Thibault's doing. Would have envisioned a similar similar role for Ben um, at that point guard spot of, of just coming in and his athleticism alone in the FIBA game would be huge. But yeah, just something that he's got to get through. I think him and the Sixers are done, I believe, Pro. I don't know what you're hearing. I think he's going to be moved. I think it's just a matter of... Um, not if, but when, and I think we'll probably see a, a change of jersey for for Ben in the future. Yeah, it de- the way Daryl Morey works too. I mean, he's a wheel and dealer. He loves making moves and trades and transactions, and especially what you know. It, it'll have been a little bit tougher to deal Ben before the playoffs, but then what happened in the playoffs? It just sort of you know gives it a whole green light to deal him. I, I think that you, you you're going to see. You're going to see him dealt within the next few months, if not much sooner than that. I mean, what they could have done for him earlier is actually, like, stop the bullshit. 
you know, get, you know, make him work with a shooting coach, their shooting coach, monitor him a little bit more, hold him accountable a little bit more about doing some of the things that he needed to do. Don't just entrust trainers to work with him in the summer that doesn't work for your team. Um, when you have an asset that's worth that much money, it's not like he's like the ninth man, which like if a ninth man wants to go and work out with somebody in LA, great, fine. You know, there's a little bit less expectations on him on a player like that than there is on Ben Simmons. And I think they could have done a little bit better job, you know, earlier in his career, first year, second year of really like tightening the reins on what he could do because he they really needed to uh, attack some things that they failed to do. And with Daryl Morey, he's going to deal him. Portland, Sacramento, you know, one of those deals, you, you're going to you, you'll probably see something, you know, happen in the next few months. Oh, watch that space. So Minnesota was in there as well. They're, they're probably in every trade room. Of the Minnesota, race. yeah. So mm-hmm. we'll see how that goes. Yeah. All right. Hello, Bogues and Pro. Can I get your thoughts on load management? Should the performance trainer have veto over the head coach or should the coach have the final say? And do you have any say regarding the matter now that you're part owner of a club? Thanks. That's from Jacob K. It's an interesting one that a lot of people talk about, a lot of debates back and forth. The good clubs, it's co- it's a collab. It's a collab. You know, you have to work together. You, there's, there's pros and cons of both sides of it. Load management becomes important if you're a playoff team that wants to go deep and you want healthy horses at the end of the day. I've seen, I've seen coaches that play their guys 40, 45 minutes a night throughout a regular season, get to the playoffs, they ride them hard and they just burn out. They're just absolutely spent physically or they get an injury. And I've seen it on the other side where coaches kind of, you know, really don't want to play guys. We see it with the Clippers a little bit when I've touched on it where they just don't get enough rhythm and time together. So I think it's a case-by-case basis. You want all your players healthy towards the end of the season. So that I think somewhat the load load management is very important. But, you know, if it's an important all-win game, and you've got a guy that's on a 30-minute limit and it's hitting his limit with four minutes left in the game, what do you do? Um, that's the conundrum. That's the conundrum you have, and everything's negotiable. So what I would do if I was a head coach, and I've had this discussion, is if a trainer said to me, this guy's got 30 minutes and there's four minutes left in a close game, a must-win game for us for whatever reason, I'd play him that extra four minutes and then be like, look, we're, we're going we're gonna to make this up during the week for his load. So you know, instead of just Monday off, we'll go Monday off for him, give him Tuesday, we'll give him a, a lighter session hut half the time that the group's doing and then maybe another day off Wednesday. It's all negotiable and you want to work together with your group. The teams that I've seen get in trouble with it is coaches that say, you know, fuck you to the trainer. You don't know shit about basketball. Oh, my my job's on the line as a coach. I'm playing this guy as much as I want. And the flip side of a load management person saying every injury is the coach's fault. So it's, it's neither one extreme or the other. You have to work together to be successful. And it's a part of our game today is managing load and injuries. And look, there is some correlation with studies. You know, we, you know, guys doing their Achilles and, and their knee and whatnot. You can't stop high impact injuries, but you can stop those soft tissue type tweaks or an Achilles tweak. The data usually for those guys has some warning signs before they do them pro. I don't know how you feel about all this, but I'm sure you'll give us your opinion. No, that's why I get the big bucks here, Bogues. But yeah, I think that I think that you have to listen to your trainer. And first, uh, in my career in Dallas, I always check with our trainer, Casey Smith, or whatever he needed, like as far as minutes for players, you know, as far as their workouts, their workload, you know, they're the ones that are sort of, they've got the degrees in that, they've got the expertise in it. Uh, I do think that there needs to be, just like anything else, things need to be tweaked. You got to be communicated. And and just like you said, like if somebody has a, a, a minute load of 30 minutes, you know, that's their, that's their max. And someone's coming back from an injury or they're an older player or whatever it is. And then it's a close game and you're like, look, 
give me a few like, let me know what the most minutes this guy can play without really putting himself in harm's way and it's got to be a little bit more over the minutes that you told me but I'll make it up to you next game I'll sit him whatever we need to do but there are certain situations where they need to play they need to play together I think like you said I think the Clippers it really screwed them you know all these guys run load management deals they never really play together and I think it really hurt them in the playoffs especially getting Rondo late and uh, playing together and all that stuff. So I do think that there needs to be communication. I think there needs to be communication with the organization saying, look, you know, we're going to try to keep to this plan as much as possible. But there are going to be times where he's going to have to go over. We're not going to disrespect the trainer and say, we're going to play him 45 minutes. Fuck you. You don't know what you're doing. But like if it's a 30-minute cap and he can get to 37 you know, can he get to 37 if we really need him to do so? Um, I just think it needs to be communicated. I think it's too many times, folks, the coaching staff is against the trainer. Trainers against the coaching staff. They both say they don't – either side don't know what the fuck they're doing on their own side. You know, and they need to say, you know what? Look, I'm on your side here. You know, we're going to defer to you as the trainer, as the doctor. You know, we know you know your stuff. But there are some times where we need to play this guy in a must-win game situation. They don't come up that often. You know, it's not like there's 82 must-win games, but there's got to be some leeway with this. Sometimes I think the teams mess themselves up by, you know, just going to that load management and, you know, following it like the Bible all the time, you know? Yeah, I think it needs to be a mix. I think it needs to be the good teams I've been on. It's an open conversation with the Kings. What we implemented, at least when Will Weaver was here, even when Adam Ford was there, was Monday morning meetings after the weekend's games, and we discuss, hey, this guy was banged up, this guy's back's messed up. We're going to tweak him back on Tuesday, get him back in the mix on Wednesday, then a lighter day on Thursday. You have those discussions and you have to have them on a daily basis. It takes 10 or 15 minutes every week. You set the load for the week and, and you try to stick to it. Now, if you go over 10 minutes on a practice, it's not the end of the world. But if you're going over an hour every other day, then that's going to be an issue. And this is where the blame game also rears its ugly head, Pro, uh, that we spoke about earlier, mm-hmm. is that um, I've been on teams. Where I was on a team where an athlete had hyper-extended his knee, was going to be out a while. Trainers you know, did some some soft tissue stuff and they're like go do some strengthening in the weight room and they walk in there 15 minutes later and this this the strength trainer's got this guy doing sled sled pushes you know like the big sled loaded with weights and you're pushing it and they're like what are you doing like we needed just some some light you know band type strengthening for his quad like he shouldn't be pushing this his knee's not ready for that the guy was delayed an extra three or four weeks from coming back i've been on a team where there'd be an injury protocol you know six to eight weeks out they'd send him in the weight room and then the guy would either re-injure himself, the trainers would blame the strength coach and say, oh, he was pushing him too hard too early. And the strength coach would say, well, the treatments weren't right. So this is the other thing that happens and and just a, a nasty part of the industry where, where is, there happens to be an injury. It's just going to be the that Spider-Man meme of the fingers pointing at the Spider-Mans. That's exactly what happens <laughs> in the NBA with coaches and all that. So I think it needs to be a balance. Totally agree with you, Pro. It needs to be a hybrid. And you can't it can't be one brush stroke to every painting. It has to be... You know, every guy's different. A guy might be like myself towards the end of the career, 35. We know he's got back issues. We got to tweak things a little bit more and keep an eye on this guy more. But a 19-year-old spry chicken from college, you know, we, we keep an eye on him, but not as much as the old dog that's probably struggling. So it needs to be a case-by-case basis, and the good teams figure that out. The bad teams don't, and there's, you know, it is a it is an important part of success these days. If you can have a healthy team, as we've seen in the playoffs, if you can have a healthy team towards the end of it, you put yourself in a much better situation to win. Last question. Absolutely love the pod and schedule my day around listening. Why did you choose the Sydney Kings over Melbourne United or any other NBL side when you returned, especially being 
a Melbourneian. That's from Steve. Uh, that is an interesting question. I've touched on this before. I was all in to come into Melbourne United negotiations with the then GM, Vince Crivelli, who's now working in the NBL. He was a junior coach of mine. I had good and bad dealings with him as a junior, and we went back and forth on a negotiation. And the NBL has a rule around player image rights, pro. So they basically own your, your image rights when you sign in the league. And I said, look, I'm not trying to pump myself up, but I think my brand is almost, my individual brand is almost as big, if not bigger than the NBLs in certain markets in Australia, as far as marketing. And I can make, you know, some of my marketing deals have, have probably been up there with the equivalent of what my NBL contract was. So I said, it's not fair to me to give up all this marketing to come back and sign a professional deal. So they, you know, they pushed back on that. We went back and forward. And then I said, look, I'll, I, I get it. You know, the, the league, for instance, is sponsored by Hungry Jacks or, as you know, Burger King. I said, I get it. If I go out and get a deal with McDonald's, it doesn't look good for the league if I'm one of the faces of the league. So I gave them a couple of categories. I said, look, I'll give you I'll give you fast food because they're one of the main sponsors. I'll give you another category um, that you can esh out that I can't compete in. And then the rest is, is the rest of the categories. I'll bring you a deal that I have and say, look, I've got a deal with company X, if your league sponsor can match that, then we negotiate, right? So it was, it was around that. Anyway, negotiations back and forth. There was a few sticking points. So then I'd met with um, Vince one last time. I still remember it on a, I think it was a Friday night or a, it was a Friday night in Melbourne, met with him locally at a restaurant. We had the discussion. I said, look, I'm not doing this and I'm not agreeing to this. We had agreed verbally to some circumstances, all got agreed, thought the deal was done. That night or the next morning got the contract and it was not what we agreed verbally. There was still some cheeky little tweaks in there that they put in and after going back and this was an ongoing negotiation for a couple of weeks after going back and forth and then actually sitting with him and looking him in the eyes and shaking his hand and coming to agreements on a deal and then having a small tweak again said you know what I'm done dealing with you I don't do business that way we agreed man to man shook hands and I, I basically called the Sydney Kings and said this is the deal I want this is what I what I had done with Melbourne Bar, the one, a few things they put in that I didn't agree with if you can do this I sign with you today and to the Kings ownership credit they flew, flew their GM, Jeff Angronigan, out immediately. I had the deal signed immediately. We went back and forth on a few little spe specifics, um, fine print, and had the deal done. And that was it. And that's basically why it's signed with Melbourne United. That's the blunt truth. And now I know Vince has been on record saying that's not the truth. Um, I have no reason to lie in this mix. I have no reason to tell Fibs I wanted to sign in Melbourne in my hometown. But the Sydney Kings thing ended up being a blessing in disguise. I met you know, Paul Smith, who's now the majority owner, I've enjoyed working with him, enjoyed working with the club, and it's been a fantastic opportunity to, to be, you know, at arm's length with the market in Sydney, and I really enjoyed my time there with the fans and the people of Sydney. So that's basically the long story short, and that's why I didn't sign Melbourne United, bro. Wow. I mean, there's always a story inside of a story with that stuff, and, and it's funny, like, when you're a casual fan or, or a follower of the league and – you just sort of, you know, you might have your sort of ideas of why you, you would assign with one team over another. You don't really know the inner workings of uh, of what goes on behind closed doors. It's a pretty cool story. Yeah, and it wasn't, oh. even, it wasn't even financial though. Like it wasn't really that much about money. It was about me like, you know, just a few small little tweaks that weren't even that big of a deal. But pro the way I do business, if I if you look me in the eyes and we shake hands on something, it better be in print the same the same way we shake hands on it. You know what I mean? I, I don't I don't like people and, and respect people. I just I just don't trust you lose my trust instantly. If then you put something in print that's completely opposite what I discussed, I'm like, I can't I can't do business with you again. I just can't. Now whether it was a printing mistake by the secretary or whatever, I, I can't I can't do business with you and that's the way I work. 
All right, that wraps up episode 30 of Rogue Bogues, the basketball series. Um, hope you enjoyed. Thanks for sending your Q&As. Once again, thanks for supporting us. We are continuing to grow, getting into double-digit thousand numbers now on a weekly basis, which is nice to see. So share this far and wide. YouTube um, has our videos as well. We do a few nice little edits like our Boomers chat on YouTube, on the YouTube page, but Rogue Bogues on all your social media forums at Hoop Consultants is pro. If you need some hoop consulting work from an NBA pro um, anywhere in the world, He's happy to help. Reach out to him, and we will see you next week, bro. Bogues, looking forward to it, brother. Hopefully, Gaze shows his uh, shows his face again. I'd like to go one on one with that motherfucker again. Shows his face via audio recording, pro. <laughs> ah, you know, I'm not the smartest fucking guy in the world. Let's be honest. See you next week. Later. <laughs>